Hi, my name is Kiefer Lirette, and I'm the host of the podcast that is about to be Select and Start. If you already know of me, I really appreciate you listening to the first episode of my show. And if you don't, I'm a creator, an editor, and kind of comedian. You can find links to my primary Twitter page and to my other creative works in the description of wherever you're listening to this. Before I get started, I wanted to talk about the purpose of the show and talk a little bit about its format and why I'm doing it. Select and Start is a show where I have personal, informal discussions about video games that people find meaningful. Against my better judgment, I love video games. Before film, literature, music, and television, I was uniquely attracted to video games as a medium. Not a lot of my real-life friends are as into it as me, though, so I created this space for myself where I can enthusiastically talk about my interests with a wide variety of people. I already have a few guests lined up, and I'm really excited to talk to them. Some of these games I've played before, and some of them I'm going to be playing for the first time specifically for the show. I'm trying to keep my enthusiasm for gaming alive, and being able to have in-depth discussions with people about these games will keep me engaged. It feels more personal than just tweeting out my thoughts. This podcast is more to me than just talking about video games, though. For me, it's also an important stepping stone towards more ambitious projects, as well as self-improvement. I'm making this show because I want to refine my skills as a creator without putting too much pressure on myself. I intend to make the best show I can, but the format allows me to put less effort into the things like preparation, research, writing, and more into the act of recording, interacting with my guests, editing, and promoting the show. This is all a learning experience for me, but I intend to make the best show possible, and I hope listeners like you get to see or hear the improvement over time. A few months ago, I made my first YouTube video, The Evil Within Netflix's Cowboy Bebop. It was a rewarding experience, and it paid off to the tune of over 50,000 views and 1,000 subscribers, but my personal takeaway from it was that I had a lot to learn and work on. That doesn't mean I'm not proud of the final product. The reception to it was incredibly positive, and I love that I made it because it proved that I was capable of writing, recording, and editing an hour-long video entirely by myself. I love that every aspect of it was entirely mine, the good, the bad, and the things that still need improvement. But I want to be more comfortable with my speaking voice, both scripted and unscripted. I want to get better at organizing my thoughts. I want my editing to be more seamless. And I want the overall quality of my work to improve because it is, in a way, a reflection of me. I haven't made a lot of progress on a follow-up video. And I think that having a relatively low-stakes project where people passionately talk about their interests, I think that'll inspire me. Aside from the thoughts my guests bring and the cover art graciously provided by my friend Avery Ott, check the links in the description for his work, the show is my sole responsibility. In addition to hosting, I will be editing and mixing the show by myself. This is a lot of responsibility for me to take on by myself, especially since I work a full-time job, so please bear with me as I work out the details of locking down a consistent release schedule. Even editing a strictly auditory experience takes a lot of effort. At this stage, I only ask that you listen with an open mind. Any feedback would be appreciated at either my personal Twitter page, at Danny Vegito, or on the official podcast page, at SelectPodStart. If you want to be constructive, you can talk about what you like or dislike. You can tell me what there should be more of, what should be trimmed down, advice, tips, whatever you think will help with the show. I appreciate you taking the time to listen to my show, and with your help, both it and myself will improve. If you don't like the show at all, well, you don't have to keep listening to it, but I appreciate you giving it a chance. All right, I think that's it. I hope you enjoy the show. Hey, Snake, you ever heard of Godzilla, King of Monsters? No, what is it? It's a movie. You haven't seen it. Snake, have you seen 007 from Russia with Love? Do you know the creature from the Black Lagoon? Have you heard of It Came from Outer Space? Snake, have you ever seen The War of the Worlds? Have you ever seen For a Fistful of Dollars? Snake, have you ever seen Jason and the Argonauts? Have you seen The Magnificent Seven? 
Snake, have you ever seen Invasion of the Body Snatchers? Have you ever seen North by Northwest? You know the bridge on the River Kwai? Snake, have you ever seen The Thing? Have you seen Dr. Strangelove or How I Learned to Stop Worrying and Love the Bomb? What? Dr. Strangelove. Have you seen it? Snake, have you ever seen Alphaville? It's a film by French New Wave director Jean-Luc Godard. Hideo Kojima, the creator of the Metal Gear franchise, references the film as one of his many influences in an article he wrote in 2004, the same year Metal Gear Solid 3 was released. Despite coming from opposite sides of the world, Kojima and Godard share a few similarities as creators. Both are intensely private individuals credited with pushing the boundaries of what was considered possible in their respective mediums, and both shared a conviction of injecting political values in their work. Their idiosyncrasies and approach to their craft made them controversial figures, but time has vindicated many of their creative choices, and it's hard to imagine what their mediums would look like without their work. There's a quote attributed to Godard that says, All you need to make a film is a girl and a gun. I don't know how familiar Kojima is with the adage, but whether he meant to or not, he embodied that philosophy during the development of Snake Eater. His previous game, Metal Gear Solid 2 Sons of Liberty, garnered polarizing reactions from fans for its convoluted postmodernist story and its new protagonist Raiden, who was considered a downgrade from the more gruff and traditionally masculine Solid Snake. Kojima elected to make the next game story relatively straightforward, going back in time from the near future to the Cold War in 1964 where players would witness the sequence of events that moved the world from contemporaneous infantry warfare to the modern age of Metal Gears. Upright bipedal tanks outfitted with nuclear weaponry. The inciting incident for these events? The firing of a Davy Crockett nuclear bomb stolen by the boss, the mentor of Naked Snake and a defector to the USSR. A girl and a gun. In order to prevent an all-out war, Snake is tasked with covertly infiltrating a Russian rainforest to kill his former mentor. A gun and a girl. And though the narrative was still fairly straightforward, the themes of nuclear proliferation, American hegemony, and the staging and framing of truth and history still resonate years later. That's not even mentioning the tremendous advancements in gameplay. Kojima's choice to tell a more straightforward story paid off tremendously. Metal Gear Solid 3 Snake Eater released a critical acclaim, appearing in many best games of all times list and finding favor with fans who rejected the more cerebral Metal Gear Solid 2. The original version of Snake Eater holds a 91 out of 100 on Metacritic and his 2006 subsistence re-release holds a 94. But we're not here to reduce the legacy of Metal Gear Solid 3 to a series of numbers. Influence isn't measured by number values or rankings. It's felt in the hearts of the people who played it. If you believe that love can bloom on a battlefield, perhaps it can also bloom on a video game console. This is Select and Start. I give my Welcome back to Select and Start. I'm Kiefer, and with me today uh, is a very special guest for our very first episode. He is the co-host of the Lord of the Rings theme podcast, My Brother, My Captain, My Podcast, as well as Podcast Sans Frontiers, a Metal Gear Solid audio experience. But most of all, he's a very good friend. 
please welcome Manu, aka Manuclear Bomb. Hey, how's it going, Kiefer? Thank you for having me. Uh, you summed up my resume pretty well there, so I don't feel like I need to plug anything up top. Um, but yeah, I'm Manu, uh, Nuclear Bomb on any social media that matters still, and I do a lot of podcasting. Before we talk about video games and face down, in your words, the technological behemoth that is the Metal Gear franchise, I think it would be good for listeners to sort of get to know you a bit real quick. What do you do? Uh, interests, hobbies, and maybe talk a little bit about those projects. Yeah. So um, what do I do? Uh, right now, it's basically just podcasting, unless you count Elden Ring as doing something. <laughs> um, but uh, most of my career has been as a developer, as a coder. I've worked writing audit software for most of uh, my career, such as it is. It's all both pretty boring and pretty capitalist. And well, you know, I was working for the man, but it's just not something I was super into. Broadly speaking, it didn't really jive with what I felt about the world and what priorities should be. So I kind of just decided I was going to peace out for a bit. And that gave me a lot of free time to podcast. I've always been into criticism, like uh, critique, and like especially with film and TV shows. I was big in the Game of Thrones, The Song of Ice and Fire media circle back when that was a pop culture juggernaut itself. With this free time, I figured why not spend some time kind of putting voice to the things I love, the things I think about. I almost feel like uh, Pig, uh, the Nicolas Cage movie, summed it up pretty well in that we only get a few things we really care about. So I thought it'd be pretty rad with the free time I had to like invest some of that time into voicing why things such as Metal Gear Solid or The Lord of the Rings matter to me. But uh, it was kind of a my pandemic project. I got a lot more time to play games and I just started playing the old Metal Gears when I got a PS Now. And then I was like, hey, I really need to do a Metal Gear podcast. And then my friend Brian basically pinged me and said, hey, you know, brother, uh, in a good liquid ocelot voice that I can't recreate. Brother! He said he'd do it with me. And that was about two years ago or a year and a half ago. And we've been rolling ever since. You know, when I left my job, that gave me a little more time to start getting into the Lord of the Rings. Uh, the Lord of the Rings is, to me, like the most significant cinematic achievement of my lifetime. I was born in 1984, so just after the original Star Wars trilogy. So while I've seen a lot of great movies in my time that were released in my time, uh, the Lord of the Rings kind of really stands out, um, both as being blockbusters, as being adaptation, and then also just kind of being at that I don't know, nexus point of cinema in terms of when a lot of the old methods were going away or being modernized. And we had all sorts of new methods in terms of computers, uh, CGI and visual effects, like really exploding. And the Lord of the Rings really sits in the middle of those two uh, Venn diagram circles. Uh, so that was always very impactful in the way I talk about movies and think about movies. Um, so just like Metal Gear, I thought, hey, why not? Let me grab someone who knows a lot about the Legendarium and Tolkien and the Lord of the Rings, my friend Emily. And between us, we've just pick out 10 minute segments of the movie and then record for two hours. And um, you can hear all the brainworms on display between the two of <laughs> us as we both have many thoughts and we both approach it from very different angles. Uh, me more from the cinematic angle and Emily more from uh, Tolkien's text and the adaptation angle. Uh, so we find a lot of weird middle ground, a lot of things we friend friendly argue about um, because we're just approaching the material from such different ways. I think the beauty of it is I think it makes both of us love the thing we love even more between, you know, defending our own beliefs or seeing stuff from another person's point of view. And I think that's ultimately what makes Lord of the Rings as 
a franchise really appealing to people is finding common ground and a greater appreciation of your world. So I do think that that is thematically significant. Going to the point about you only have one life, you got to do what you love, paraphrasing the pig movie. It seems like Metal Gear is such a significant fixture of your life. I want to know who or what got you into that series. I originally got into it uh, because of my friend, my best friend, Hossein, at the time. This was in 1998, so we were 14. We were in junior high. We were pretty into just video games generally ever since, you know, the original Nintendo came out. We had been playing Mario and Zelda together. Sony PlayStation was kind of a new thing because we were just like I was a Nintendo kid. Um, I had the NES, the Super NES and Nintendo 64. I had a Game Boy. The thought of buying a video game console from a non-Nintendo publisher was just unheard of. Whenever a big game came along, Hussein would just give me his PlayStation and whatever game. So he gave me Final Fantasy VII and Resident Evil 2. I would give him my N64 so he could play whatever games of mine that he wanted to. So uh, he gave me Metal Gear Solid. And I think the big thing is we were both like super into James Bond films. It's definitely a dad thing. We both got it from our dads. And I think it's also specifically a immigrant dad thing because it is accessible Western media if you're not originally from the States. My dad's originally from India. Uh, Hossein's dad is originally from Iran. James Bond is one of the first film franchises that really went international, that got released internationally, that played in other markets, in part because it itself is a international series and is globetrotting. We got this video game, and it's basically kind of a James Bond story, um, obviously very scaled down, but they invoke James Bond specifically throughout. It also kind of sucked in all of my other favorite film influences at the time, uh, Blade Runner, Die Hard, The Thing, all their DNA, their genes are in uh, that first Metal Gear Solid game. And it was also just a feat of technology at the time. We had not played a console game that had full voice acting, voice performance, um, and a sense of direction with the camera. You'd have stuff like Final Fantasy VII that would have like here or there a cutscene, and the cutscene would look radically different from the gameplay. This part's the game, this part's the story, and it never really had that synthesis of the two. And Metal Gear Solid, because all of its cutscenes are in its uh, game engine, it felt like it synthesized both being a game and a story in a way that no video game at least on a console, had ever done that. Um, so it was doing things technologically um, I had never seen and had not expected this you know, medium of entertainment to ever achieve. Stealth mechanics were something that were not really big in video games. This And 1998 was a big year for stealth video games. I think that's when the first Thief came out as well. Um, and I think around Metal Gear Solid, maybe a little after, we got Tenchu, which is a stealth ninja assassin game. Stealth gameplay, it like rocks my world. Like it puts me on edge. Anytime I play a video game now, I start in stealth. Um, I try to use stealth mechanics the most. Um, there's just a certain way it engages how I think about things and kind of heightens my attention to what's going on in the screen. Nothing had ever scratched that itch before. And because of that, um, it's affected the way I play other games and why I've latched on to the Metal Gear series specifically going forward. So that kind of ties into what my next question was going to be, asking about Metal Gear Solid and how that franchise has shaped your taste and influenced what you've consumed, but also your greater life. I know that you said that you are a coder. You have a very specific appreciation for Metal Gear and how technology is weaved into the hardware and how in-engine cutscenes and everything. You have a very great understanding of that. Did you, do you think that that game or video games in general influenced your career path at all? And influence the media you've consumed and how you've consumed it since getting into the series. 
So I don't know if it had a direct effect on me deciding to become a coder, just in so far as uh, when I decided to switch from auditor to coding, that was me just kind of being opportunistic and seeing where the pipelines of employment were. It's actually more the other way now that I understand more about coding, about architectures, about you know libraries and what can be accessible publicly, privately, um, what exists at what level of an architecture. Once I had that kind of firm understanding, I was able to circle back to Metal Gear Solid and really appreciate what was going on. Uh, one thing I look for in as much art as possible is how it engages with the medium that it's in. And games are a very new medium relative to something like books or poetry. And cinema is a little newer, but still has, you know, a lifetime on video games. Um, but like, you know, the great French New Wave uh, directors or even people like Hitchcock or Scorsese, um, they'll very much engage with what the medium of cinema is, what it can do, what its technology allows it to do and what its limitations are. And Kojima's Games, who uh, directed Metal Gear Solid, for those that don't know, were the first that really felt like it engaged in that space where let's look at a video game as more than just memory written onto some cartridge or CD, but like, what is it playing on? What is in the player's hand? It was very comprehensive and in a way that it cultivated experience that you couldn't recreate through a visual novel or a movie or just a standard, you know, video game with side scrolling or top down gameplay. Um, it really tried to be both something new by engaging with the totality of the thing that it is. I don't know if I could appreciate Metal Gear at the level that I do and make 50 some odd episodes of my podcast without really diving into the technology. And I think that was the missing link for me. If I had tried to do a Metal Gear podcast maybe 15 years ago, I don't think I would have the understanding I'd have now of just what like technological achievements the games are, just that they're created, much less that they're you know memorable gameplay, memorable stories, and actually say something worthwhile, which I think is the biggest legacy it has in how I look at other art these days. I like a lot of, you know, stupid stuff or like mediocre stuff. I'm not going to lie, <laughs> but I'm not someone who ever says, oh, I just turned my brain off and enjoyed what was on the screen. Maybe this is better or worse, but if I see something stupid and I like it, I find reasons why it's good. The fact that it could, uh, Metal Gear Solid was able to be visually interesting, but also thematically and narratively interesting, kind of narrowed the realm of video games down for me in a way. Like I would play other games and I'm like, yeah, this is cool. But, you know, it's just mindlessly blowing shit up. Um, I could I tried several Call of Duty games. I never got past a couple hours on either of them. And that was before they were rewriting American war crimes to be Russian war crimes. And even like a great game that I played in the last couple of years, The Ghost of Tsushima, I thought it was like a fantastically designed game. One of the few open worlds where even though there was a lot of fetch quests or just go do this, I actually enjoyed doing a lot of it because it was all breathtaking to look at. But at the same time, I'm like, this game's not really questioning the violence that you're doing or it's questioning it in such a pedestrian way that it's not really engaging me at any kind of philosophical or ethical level. And I mean, that might be an unfair burden to hold games to. But, you know, that is something I look for. And a lot of people, when they pick up video games, they're like, I just want something where I can turn my mind off and play. Uh, and I get that because for a lot of people, you know, you get two hours a day to like do whatever with. Um, so you don't want to sit there and, you know, just start being killed instantly by whatever 
enemy is in whatever video game you're playing. But like to actually make something challenging for you to have patience, to have to sit there and watch 30 minutes of introduction video and storytelling, it kind of expands what video games can be because like film, not every movie is the 2012 Avengers movie where you can just kind of sit down, watch it and just have a good time more or less. Um, You know, some movies are inscrutable. You have to watch many times. Um, You're not going to enjoy it perhaps the first time, but you come back, revisit it, give it another chance, and you keep finding more and more until you realize the depth and breadth of what that director or what the piece of work is actually saying. Uh, I want to circle back a little bit to Ghost of Tsushima. And I think the reason that you didn't gel with it is because that game narratively discourages stealth gameplay. Uh, (laughs) uh, The first time you... Uh, stealth kill someone you get a flashback to your uncle saying like why did you do that you're bringing dishonor on your family and it's fucking hilarious to be frankly um i like ghost of tsushima i think that its accomplishments on a narrative level are more emotionally driven than thematically significant i know that that was a game that sort of was embroiled in the discourse in 2020 because uh the last of us 2 had come out that year and that was a very controversial game for its narrative choices whereas Comparatively, uh, Ghost of Tsushima was pretty safe, straightforward. I enjoy it quite a bit, like I said, but it isn't a very, it doesn't challenge its audience in any meaningful way. I think it accomplished exactly what it set out to do, which is to be a good version of what it is, an open world game, but it doesn't push the envelope in a way that a game like the Metal Gear franchise would. So I guess that is going to move us forward a little bit into talking about the creative force behind it. Uh, You mentioned him earlier, Hideo Kojima. The Metal Gear games have a unique reputation in part because of that main creative force behind it. Hideo Hideo Kojima is the director and writer for what are considered the canon games in the Metal Gear franchise. What is your opinion of Kojima and do you think that he's a genius? Oh boy. Um, I I don't think there's any way I can not stake the claim that he's a genius of sorts. Um, I think that would belie the 50 some hours of podcasting I've already done on it. Right. Um, it's, it's interesting because uh, Kojima, especially 15, 20 years ago, is one of the few like video game creators you really knew um, or knew about. Uh, there was like Miyamoto who created Mario, but then it was more kind of in the last 10, 15 years, especially with the explosion of Western production studios, um, that we know a little bit more about the creative forces behind a lot of these games. Hideo Kojima has kind of gone, I like I've been part of Kojima discourse since like more 2001 um, than uh, 1998. But like, so I've gone through a couple rounds and it kind of sticks in my head, like around 2010 to 2012, um, there was kind of like a anti Kojima, what's it called? There's a backlash. That's the word. Um, just like, you know, all the Kojima stands are crazy. This guy's not as brilliant as he thinks he is. And I feel like that's kind of gone away now. Um, I think Kojima's Twitter has helped that because he just seems like a dude who just likes a lot of stuff and tries to mold it all into something worthwhile when he creates his own video games. But I, I think he's a pretty rad dude. I've read um, he had a book come out last year called The Creative Gene, and it's more a collection of essays than you know one long story or memoir. Um, but it's basically him talking about his favorite predominantly books, to be honest, not even movies or music. Um, But he's a vociferous reader. He basically says he goes to the bookstore once a week, tries to buy three or four titles and tries to read them all within the week if he can. Um, This is in addition to seeing as many movies as he can. He had a tradition going back way when he was young. Um, They would go see a movie 
every week. And then like the parents would like, you know, take them out to dinner and have uh, Hideo and his sibling basically talk about the movie that happened, what they thought about it, et cetera, et cetera. So just through all that, I've learned that he's very thoughtful. Sometimes when you look at some of the insane stuff that's in a Metal Gear Solid game, or like, you know, some of the like, oh, you can press the first person view to look at a woman's tits. Uh, <laughs> you, you know, a lot of people kind of have this idea that, oh, this is kind of a 13 year old boy. His favorite movies are like Die Hard and Escape from New York, the kind of stuff a 13 year old boy would say is their favorite movie. So I think there's kind of an idea that he's kind of immature in a way in terms of his like intellect or what he's bringing to the creative decisions in Metal Gear Solid. And I think kind of stepping back now with some hindsight, seeing how some of his stories have aged. And I also think a better understanding of Japanese culture, because when you can slot Metal Gear Solid more in line with other Japanese video games and anime of the time, that's a lot better context than we had in 1998. Not, um, I hadn't seen any anime really aside from some Sailor Moon at that point. So I didn't really understand what uh, Japanese culture's relation to sexuality was, to violence was. And like now having a little more context of that, um, I can see how Kojima is sucking in a lot from both Western and Japanese culture to create his work. And genius is, you know, (laughs) a very big and loaded word to say, but I think he's just very thoughtful about everything. And I think that thoughtfulness comes through in his games which, you know, they have a very surface level reading that you can play, enjoy and say, oh, that was fun. That was a good story. It had some twists and turns and that was that. Or it has stuff that you can literally pick at for hours like a scab and keep finding more stuff come out. Right. I think I find myself on the same page as you with that. I don't know if I personally subscribe to Altair Theory in the sense that as much as I like Kojima and his games, I don't like giving him entirely the full credit for the successes of the game. You know, the things that make this series great and unique are not necessarily his alone. Uh, There's the series composer, uh, Harry Gregson-Williams and Norihiko Hibono. The various people who work on the localization in the various games are very responsible for how we as English speakers perceive the story and the dialogue as it's spoken. And then there's obviously uh, Yoji Shinkawa's art, which I think is incredible design work. The style is just so immediately memorable to me, and I think it is crucial to the vibe of the series. But I also do think that Kojima is great. Obviously, he has his shortcomings. You talked about the way that he depicts sexuality, in particular with his female characters, isn't great to me. He does have you know, a lot of great writing. I think he's very thoughtful, like you said. Most importantly, he's great at the presentational aspect of things. When I play these games, I don't see them as interactive movies, no matter how cinematic they are. They're video games with dense narratives. Kojima isn't a film director. He's a game director. He's certainly influenced by films and he helped popularize the cinematic game experience for better or worse. You know, when you play a Naughty Dog game like Uncharted or The Last of Us, there is a bit of dissonance as to how much am I as a player affecting this story? Am I just on the rails going through the motions? With Kojima, the story influences the narrative. The way he incorporates that film experience into the video game medium feels so singular. And I don't know anyone else who can get away with weaving in philosophical texts like, what is it called? The simulacra and simulation, (laughs) uh, which is, you know, postmodernist French philosophy, while also giving equal weight to Michael Bay's The Rock. He rules for that. Yeah. And you can tell his heart's in video games. You know, he makes thoughtful considerations in the designs. And like I said earlier, weaving the gameplay and narrative in a way that we aren't just spectators of these stories. We are participants. Those games aren't like any other that I've really played. And I think that's why he's a crucial presence in the medium. Mr. Kojima. 
I mean, he definitely has his shortcomings. I don't want to sell him as like this perfect creator. And I agree with you. There's a lot of alchemy that goes into Metal Gear, making it such a great series. Um, I'm glad you highlighted all those people. Uh, Shuyo Murata is another one who's been on the story team ever since, I think, Metal Gear Solid 2, uh, possibly Metal Gear Solid 1. I just haven't played the first game in a while, so I don't remember exactly all the credits, but I remember all the names that flash in that Metal Gear Solid 2 sizzle reel. I think the music of Metal Gear Solid is very memorable and just the entire soundscape. If you've been on TikTok, you've at least heard the Metal Gear alert sound, if nothing else. But uh, the score is infinitely memorable, if very similar to something like The Rock. They all have these really operatic kind of closing songs that kind of work through the story at key moments. Going back to just the first Metal Gear Solid, there's a very emotional scene with the death of Sniper Wolf, and you start hearing the background music, which is going to be the end credit song, The Best Is Yet to Come. The, these were musical landscapes, and I don't think if Metal Gear sounded as good, they would again not be as memorable Jeremy Blaustein was the localizer on the first Metal Gear Solid. And though Kojima didn't love the localization, it's generally considered the best localization for better or for worse. Mm -hmm. um, it also helps that Metal Gear Solid might be the most straightforward to localize relative to how crazy some of the other stories get. And then, of course, the voice performers, I don't think uh, without specifically David Hayter, Solid Snake, and then uh, Big Boss, Naked Snake is as memorable as they are. And then, of course, uh, Cam Clark as Liquid Snake has become iconic in his own way. I also don't really ascribe to auteur theory, or at least at best, ignores that video games, just like film, are a very collaborative process. And it has to be that perfect mix of talent and luck to really get something magical like Metal Gear. Exactly. And I do want to give Kojima credit where it's due because he's very actively involved in the development of these games. He writes the stories as well as directing the experience. And he even writes the lyrics to some of the songs that we hear throughout the series. So I'm not going to like downplay his significance and his role in the franchise, but it is very necessary to me to give a shout out to the other people who are crucial in our appreciation for this franchise. I don't believe it. Kojima is God. Kojima is God. Um, cause... We are about to talk about the very specific game that you chose uh, in a moment, but I did also want to do a sort of vibe check. You know, gamers are very gatekeepy in general, and I wanted to get a bit more of your profile of your gaming tastes, what your relationship is with gaming right now. What is Manu's portrait of a gamer look like? So... My gaming heyday probably exists almost entirely before you were born, Kiefer. I've been a gamer, or I've been playing games at least ever since I've been four or five years old, but I was definitely my most industrious between the years 1989 and 2002. So basically everything from the original NES through the first half of the PlayStation 2 era was when I was consuming the most games. And back then I consumed just everything that I thought would be good, whether it's side scrollers like Mega Man, you know, kind of action RPGs like Legend of Zelda to Final Fantasy and Secret of Mana and Chrono Trigger, some more traditional JRPGs, a lot of Madden, a lot of um, MLB games. I love the Tony Hawk series and still do actually. They had a great re-release a couple of years ago. I agree. Uh, I have had experience playing with a lot of games, but a lot of genres that took root in the 90s, more or less. After essentially college is when I started kind of not gaming a lot less. And that's because I kind of prioritized my social life, for lack of a better term. I just had a lot less time where I was in my room playing my PlayStation 2 or my Xbox because I'd rather go out and have some drinks or sit with my friends and watch a movie. 
Um, so I was just playing a lot less. So at that point, I kind of started stripping down to just, oh, well, I love Metal Gear Solid. I'm still into Final Fantasy. I still love Zelda. So I was basically just kind of following the big titles that I was into. I really got into the first couple of Halos, um, and that was a function of being at college. And that's when we were able to get people on a LAN connection and play eight on eight. So that was very fun. And then after college, I started this job that I mentioned. That's a 50 hour a week job. So it didn't allow for a lot of free time. So I was basically waiting for my Metal Gears. Um, I got into Assassin's Creed for the first couple of titles, but I bounced off that hard after the third one or during the third one. Um, <laughs> I picked up uh, Uncharted, which again, it, it's a very simple story. It's not trying to be a Metal Gear Solid in terms of its philosophical or ethical dilemmas, but it is evocative of Indiana Jones, which is one of my favorite things in the world, or at least Raiders and Last Crusade. So just having like kind of a video game experience that was like that, you know, I started getting into the more newer Tomb Raiders. I wish I could say I played much outside of like AAA games outside of the last 12 years, but that's pretty much what it has been. But honestly, it's mostly been Metal Gear. Um, <laughs> like every every year, or every two or three years, I find a way to try and play two or three or four I have two and three, the original PlayStation 2 copies. I had the PlayStation 3 copy of Metal Gear Solid 4. Metal Gear Solid 5 ended up putting 400 hours in over the course of the last six years and probably another 100 for the podcast coming up soon. It's one of those things. It's kind of how I feel about film where I'm kind of ashamed of how few films I've actually seen, but I'm not shy about like putting my full critical weight into analyzing the things I have seen and not really sweating is like, well, I haven't seen all of Ingmar Bergman's films, so I don't feel like I can comment on this. I'm not that kind of person. It's like, I've only seen Boss Baby, but I can tell you about all the Boss Baby vibes I get from uh, whatever movie I've seen last. So that's kind of me as a gamer. So before 2002, if there was a big game, I almost absolutely played it. And ever since then, it's kind of been embarrassingly mainstream AAA games. Um, I'm kind of like the person who only watches Marvel and Star Wars movies, but for video games, it's it's not the greatest, but it's also just a function of how much free time I have and how much of that free time I was willing to dedicate to video games when I was also dating and trying to move to the city, get adjusted to a new job, um, and also keep alive other hobbies I have, like watching movies, reading books. I guess that's all of them, but um, those are a lot. <laughs> no, uh, that was very thorough and I really appreciate it. I can really relate to the idea of having to find balance for the things that you care about because part of the reason that I started this podcast was because I'm really trying to hone in on gaming and finding a greater appreciation for it because this is my first love media-wise. I grew up in a household with older brothers who had a Super Nintendo and a Nintendo 64 and a Sony PlayStation. By the time I was born, I was born in 96. So you are 100% correct in saying that your relationship with gaming started before I was even a concept. <laughs> um, so, but I was surrounded by it, you know, like the first game I remember looking at is Zelda Ocarina of Time, which, you know, if that's your first foray into games, like really can't pick a better one. And at a point where, you know, you have to sort of like pick two things. You can have a social life and you can be really into movies, but you can't be like a super social person that's also really, like really into music and movies and video games because you're not going to find balance. So like right now I watched a movie damn near every day this year. But gaming, I'm slacking on. So this is just a really good exercise in going off of people's relationships with games and finding a deeper appreciation for these individual games that we talk about. So I guess that will smoothly transition us into talking about the very specific uh, game that you chose, uh, Metal Gear Solid 3 Snake Eater. Commencing virtuous mission now. 
a little bit of background on it for our audience. Uh, Metal Gear Solid 3 is the third numbered entry in the Metal Gear franchise, but I believe it is, what, the fifth or sixth overall, if you count the Game Boy Color game as well? Uh, uh, yes, you have two MSX games, and I believe one Game Boy game uh, to throw in with Metal Gear Solid 1 and 2 at that point. And ultimately, what really matters are the two MSX games and the two Metal Gear Solid games on the PlayStation and PlayStation 2. Right, the canonical entries are the ones where Kojima had a direct directorial role in it, and I believe that the Game Boy game was considered non-canonical and wasn't directed by him, so it's not really included in that conversation the way the MSX and first two Metal Gear Solid games are. The Metal Gear Solid franchise in general is developed and published by Konami, known for other video game franchises like Silent Hill, Castlevania, and the Yu-Gi-Oh! video games, and it was released on November 17th, 2004. Let's quickly paint a picture and see what 2004 was like for video games. This will include other notable games like Half-Life 2, Grand Theft Auto San Andreas, uh, Halo 2, World of Warcraft, Metroid Prime Echoes. Real quick fun fact, all of these games and Metal Gear Solid 3 were released over the course of a month. So San Andreas was late October, Halo 2, November 9th. Metroid Prime 2, November 15th, Half-Life 2, November 16th, and then Metal Gear Solid 3 on the 17th. So those three games are a day apart. And then a week later, World of Warcraft comes out, which even though I was an eight-year-old at the time and had no concept of PC gaming, it felt like a phenomenon. Some more heaters from 2004 include Jack 3, Burnout 3, Paper Mario The Thousand Year Door, Star Wars Knights of the Old Republic 2, Katamari Damacy, and Pokemon Fire Red and Leaf Green. And I included this particular game because I know you are a fan of the franchise, Manu. Uh, James Bond, Everything or Nothing. (laughs) Yeah, sadly that game was more on the nothing end than everything. Um, Actually, no, I heard it's actually not too bad. I only played it very briefly. I mean, I had a Metal Gear game, so... Uh, I do love the James Bond franchise. Unfortunately, the video game output has been less than great, um, Mm -hmm. at least up until this point, because um, the studio that does Hitman, IO, is that what it is? They are going to be doing the next James Bond game. And I haven't played the Hitman games, but I have seen them. Uh, My podcast co-host, Brian, is super into them. He showed them to me when we hung out last. So that should be promising. But yeah, I, I actually don't have a lot of thoughts on everything or nothing. I wish I did. I just haven't hit as many Bond games as I, you would think I would have at this point. Yeah, you said that your gaming experience was like prior to the 21st century. Um, <laughs> so I think you probably know more about GoldenEye than, say, Nightfire or what the PlayStation 2 entries of the games were. That's not nearly all of the games that came out in 2004. I really also want to touch on the embarrassment of riches that stealth genre fans had that year because the second Splinter Cell game had come out, Thief, Deadly Shadows... Metal Gear Solid, The Twin Snakes, which is the GameCube remake of the first Metal Gear Solid game, and Sly 2, Band of Thieves. They were all released in 2004. I actually have a lot of nostalgia for those Sly Cooper games, and those were my first foray into stealth genre, and kind of embarrassing, uh, because I know which one came first and which one was influenced by the other, but playing these Metal Gear games recently, as I did at the end of last year and the beginning of this year, doing the getting a lot of Sly Cooper vibes from this... um, (laughs) That's not every single good game that had come out in 2004, but I don't want to spend the next two hours gushing about how great of a year 2004 was for gaming. (laughs) You know, there's a quote from a famous gamer that I think is apt here. Uh, There are decades when nothing happens and there are weeks where decades happen. (laughs) Uh, That gamer, of course, being Vladimir Lenin. The reason I mention these is because with a year as stacked as that, filled with some all-time great games, I personally do think that Metal Gear Solid 3 Snake Eater is the best of that bunch. Yeah, um, I mean, I'm biased. I think Metal Gear Solid 3, 
I'm not sure if it's my favorite game, but it's it, it's definitely in the cont- in contention for it. It's kind of funny you listing those titles because three years prior in 2001, Metal Gear Solid 2 dropped the same time as Halo and Grand Theft Auto 3. Leading into the fall of 2001, Metal Gear Solid was definitely the most hyped of those three titles. Um, Halo and Microsoft as a whole, as a video games publisher, was very unknown. And Grand Theft Auto was just, oh, these weird top-down steal-a-car thing. Come 2004, the game that was you know, the most anticipated three years ago was probably the least anticipated of those three, in large part because Metal Gear Solid 2 was met with such rabid uh, backlash for its protagonist, which the awesome and manly Solid Snake was swapped out for the genderless, colorless Raiden. And a lot of people were not happy with that because they pick up games to fantasize being their favorite heroes. And instead, they got this pretty boy who didn't really know what was going on. And a lot of people were pissed about that. And all the while, you got to see Solid Snake go and do badass stuff or hear about him doing badass stuff that was just not on screen. And it kind of left people very mad. Uh, So because of that, cachet in Metal Gear Solid was kind of at the lowest it had been in my lifetime since the first one and probably still. It was definitely anticipated because everyone knows a Metal Gear Solid game is still something you want to check out. Um, I was still there for it. Um, Not quite day one because I was at school at the time and I just waited until my winter break. So a couple weeks after it came out, there wasn't this big bustling spoiler environment with movies or games like there is now. You don't have as much pressure to get to it on day one in the same way that you might feel about a game or movie now. So waiting that long, I wasn't spoiled on anything. And I hadn't put as much brain power into the game at that point. I really didn't know what I was seeing at the time. Like, oh, this is set in the 1960s, but this looks like Solid Snake. So is he just a lot older than I thought I was? Or was I unclear on the timeline? They have concrete ears for everything, but they don't like beat you down with it. Um, So you could theoretically play the first two games and only have a vague idea of when they're set, like vaguely modernish time. You know, when they started introducing the boss and I kept hearing the word boss, 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 I kind of started piecing together, ah, this is going to be the story of Big Boss, who was kind of a ghost in the first two games. They talked about him a lot, um, but his presence was entirely in the MSX games that Western audiences did not get to play until the 2006 re-release of Metal Gear Solid 3 uh, when they were packed in with the subsistence uh, re-release edition. Metal Gear Solid 3 was this kind of you know, kind of trying to win fans back, or at least it had the reputation that it was. So it was kind of, quote unquote, getting back to basics. They kind of totally scrapped the urban environments of Metal Gear Solid 1 and 2 and went to the jungle, which uh, created a whole new system of mechanics and gameplay that Kojima could play with. Kojima was able to go wild with everything he loved from Predator and Rambo and work in all those kind of film influences. Um, and then we started getting survivalism, which wasn't something we saw a ton of in games at this point. The Resident Evils kind of were in that survivalist space to a, a degree. But this one was very much about rationing your ammo, about eating, uh, mm. you know, making sure you have enough stamina, you're not overly tired. And these were things that had started to show up in Metal Gear Solid games. This is where it was fully realized for the first time. It was kind of a mindfuck because you're like trying to wrap your head on the story while also wrapping your head around all these new systems and the way that it just didn't handle like previous Metal Gear games, where in the first two games, you basically hid behind walls or inside a cardboard box. But this, you spent most of your time on your belly like a snake crawling through grass and just staying as low as possible. It introduced uh, suppression deterioration, which means you can't just go around and just shooting everyone and putting them to sleep. 
you had to be a lot more thoughtful because you had both limited ammo and limited suppressor. And the enemy AIs were more varied. They were patrolling in much larger areas. It was just, it was kind of an explosion of everything that was in the first two games and that it was more explicitly wrapped in the James Bond trappings than the previous two games were full on with the James Bond style theme song. It just completely left an impression. And it's wild to say that every Metal Gear Solid game kind of blows me away. Um, You would think there'd be some level of diminishing returns, but the fact that each one is kind of rebuilt as its own thing um, allows it to always kind of be eye opening and, you know, leaving you awestruck at the changes, even though everything you're seeing is infinitely familiar from the previous game or two. I don't know if you are the best or worst possible first guest I could have had on the show because you just kicked the dick out of my next three questions. <laughs> um, uh, like, it's literally like, what do you think makes this game, uh, gives this game like the positive reputation? What does three introduce? And you literally thoroughly explain like, oh, well, this is a jungle setting. Those were very espionage and secret bases hiding behind walls. And then this is resource management and survival. And it's like, okay, great. Um. Ah, I can see into your mind. Talk a little bit more about the appeal that this specific game has and its hold on not only fans of the Metal Gear franchise, but it has a positive reputation among people who aren't as ingratiated in that franchise as you know you or now me are. Metal Gear Solid 3 is probably the most straightforward game of the series to follow, narratively speaking. Even Metal Gear Solid 1, while it doesn't expect you to have played the MSX games, it is tied to that vis-a-vis Snake's relationship with Big Boss and Gray Fox and the villain Liquid also reckoning with the legacy of Big Boss and his resentment of that. Unlike every other game of the series, you can appreciate Metal Gear Solid 3's story without knowledge of the previous entries. 3 benefits from being, confusingly, since it's called 3, a prequel. But I do think that there is a thematic reason for its simplicity, because the plot is that you're playing as Naked Snake, and it's set in the last days before the Metal Gears become a prominent fixture in warfare. So... This game thematically is, in a way, about the death of simplicity. We're watching infantry warfare die in front of us, and the boss battles in this game are like about different facets of human warfare against other humans, where after you beat them, they literally explode. So these are quote-unquote simpler times before, as Snake says in Metal Gear Solid 4, war has changed. Every subsequent Metal Gear game, and every prior one, is retrofitted to be a reaction to the events of Snake Eater. Thankfully, simple doesn't mean that it's generic because the appeal of the Metal Gear franchise is idiosyncrasies and how strange and different it is from uh, every other game, end of sentence, period. <laughs> I don't think this game would have been as successful if it didn't have those weird idiosyncrasies that the you know world still has, which is having to eat live animals for nutrition and the absolutely bonkers boss fights, which we'll talk about in a minute. But there is something to be said in the way, in addition to the way that Snake Eater improves on the gameplay and is probably less obtuse from a control standpoint as the first two games. I think the reason that it may be regarded so highly is that it was a follow-up to the polarizing Metal Gear Solid 2 sense of liberty. Kojima's games are very much about denying the player the you know, the unchallenged power fantasy that so many other games give you. So, you know, you play as Snake in Metal Gear Solid 1 and he slowly learns empathy. And then MGS2, you play as Raiden, who is a wuss intentionally. It's not that Kojima expects us to think this character's cool. You know, he is supposed to be a wuss and he's not supposed to be as cool as Snake. And Snake's supposed to be a badass around him and just doing donuts around his angst. The compromise that Kojima makes in this third one, while there's like a extremely, extremely negative backlash around that is... 
you're getting snake, but it's not solid snake. And I think that that compromise is the smartest decision he has ever made because you as a player get to experience the inciting incident for the entire franchise through the eyes of Naked Snake, who is not the snake that we know from the previous games, but he's Big Boss, Snake's mentor, as well as his progenitor. Metal Gear Solid established that Solid Snake's a clone of Big Boss, and they physically resemble each other. They have the same voice and broadly share the same mannerisms, but as characters, they greatly differ. And I think that there's a brilliance that emerges from that. Manu, do you want to sort of chime in since I've just talked a lot for the past two minutes? Yeah, no, I think it's very explicit that that's what the goal was. I think the term naked snake is very much about we're stripping away all that backstory and baggage we loaded onto Solid Snake from the first two games. And the end of Metal Gear Solid 2 is specifically about leaving you in a little bit of a confused mess. Um, So I think not just as, you know, a treatise to fans and like an apology here is a simpler game. I think it's actually wants to be like, what's the simplicity that bore out the complexity we see in the solid snake era games. When he's going back to the beginning, he literally invokes Genesis. The themes of knowledge, the snake, Eva and Adam are all over this. It all happens in a jungle. So it's supposed to represent the garden of Eden in a certain way. And he was really able to kind of pare it down And because he was not carrying over any of the established cast, minus Revolver Ocelot, who would be in a much younger form, he was able to create a whole slew of new characters, and probably more so than any other Metal Gear game, almost all the new characters hit at various levels, whether it's someone like the boss, who is considered one of the best written characters in games, period. I think Eva has some shortcomings, but I think overall she's a pretty well-realized character. Volgan's a great meathead baddie. We stand a bisexual communist king. Um, and then while the Cobra unit isn't specifically like deep character wise across the board, they are just very unique and memorable, both in characterization and in the actual boss fight you have. Going back to the first Metal Gear Solid, we didn't really get time to linger on it, but its boss fights were one of the reasons it became such a phenomenon. And while Metal Gear Solid 2 had some incredible boss fights because of everything else going on in that game, they weren't able to take center stage when discussing the pros and cons of Metal Gear Solid 2. And because I think there's a much simpler story in Metal Gear Solid 3, we were able to focus more in on these boss fights are really incredible, which I know we're going to talk about, so I don't want to get too far ahead of your uh, notes or plan here. But I think all of those things show that Kojima is always kind of in tune with what he's doing. And he really, you know, found a way to make something that was still inherently Metal Gear, but find a way to move it forward. And it kind of laid down the way, because even though the systems would radically change for Metal Gear Solid 4, the way gameplay works really gets solidified here. Less kind of the traditional hiding, hide and seek style things we were doing in the first two Metal Gear Solid games. And I think a lot of it's just the story's just good. There's not a lot to say about it. It's not like super complex. Um, And it found a new way to challenge that video game power fantasy. Naked Snake is on a prescribed path of sorts, but you find out that it's all part of this bigger sacrifice at the foot of American Empire. Kojima not being an American, you know, it's not a good thing necessarily that this was all sacrificed to, you know, facilitate the growth of the American intelligence state and surveillance state and all the stuff we'll see in later Metal Gear titles. So really, really was incredible that he was able to strip down everything that people didn't like about the first or the last entry and was able to kind of build something ground up that still felt thematically resonant and still kind of tied everything together because 
Metal Gear Solid 3, you've heard this before, was supposed to be his last (laughs) Metal Gear Solid game. And there really was, between those three games with three completely different protagonists, well, kind of, uh, but I do think Metal Gear Solid 3 works as a great series capper and would have been cool if like, oh, the last in the series was just a prequel and it kind of explains what happened to lead to the Solid Snake years. Yeah, I think that 3 is probably the last time that we would have probably a universally accepted Metal Gear game ever because every (laughs) subsequent game is obviously going to be part of that new discourse that's brewing. So 4, again, is going to deny the fans the power fantasy by making their beloved Solid Snake old and decrepit and tired. There is Peace Walker, which people just really didn't play because it was on, you know, a mobile uh, PSP. Doesn't really have a lot of discourse because there wasn't a huge audience for that, especially in um, the United States. And then V uh, has so much stuff surrounding (laughs) it because, again, it's coming up in 2015 where we're entering the social media age and everything is controversial and there has to be discourse about literally every single facet about the way we conduct ourselves and (laughs) what we interact with. And also because Konami was giving Kojima the boot and he was not able to interact with his own development team in the final months leading up to the release, leading fans and people to believe that the game as it was released is unfinished. That is a story for another day. I really want to say stay on three here. Ultimately, what I'm trying to say is the decision to focus a game on Naked Snake, who would become Big Boss instead of the Solid in Metal Gear Solid Snake. I think that's brilliant because it allows Kojima and the developers to branch out and explore new stories, characters, styles, gameplay without immediately alienating fans of the series. It's strategic growth and a quote unquote return to form that pushes the series forward. Obviously, they end up in very different places with different ideologies, but the way that Snake and Big Boss differ make for the extremely interesting gameplay mechanics that are introduced in this series. In my notes, I tried to come up with like a shorthand to uh, explain like the immediate differences between Big Boss and Solid Snake, besides the fact that Big Boss would go on to become a war criminal. And I think like the best way I can explain it in shorthand is, this is on my mind because Knights of the Old Republic did this puzzle. <laughs> you know, the the Gallon puzzle from the Die Hard 3, where yep, he has to yep, like... Yep. Snake would know how to do that because he knows math and he's trained to be the perfect soldier from birth because he's the product of a breeding program and knows a million languages and he just has a very intelligent person. He would mathematically know how to solve that problem. And Naked Snake, as he comes in, he would be able to solve that puzzle because he would know the exact amount of fluid ounces that are in his mouth and just spit it into the the gallon and measure it out that way. (laughs) He is a jungle man and Snake is a very tactile modern man. Those differences make David Hayter's performance as both characters dynamic and interesting because by the time you get to Peace Walker, he's basically like Joker-fied with that final speech that he gives. If the times demand it, we'll be revolutionaries, criminals, terrorists, and yes, we may all be headed straight to hell, but what better place for us than this? It is our only home. Our heaven and our hell. This is our heaven. Now that we're actually talking about gameplay and Metal Gear Solid 3 itself, I do want to sort of ask you, what is something that Metal Gear Solid 3 Snake Eater does as a video game that you wish other video games would incorporate? Who? Oh, man, that, that's it. That's a good question, because I don't know if I have an immediate answer. Um, oof. I I think it just extremely paced well. 
I think something that I'm thinking about, especially as I'm approaching the end of Elden Ring, is just mm-hmm. like I'm now at a series where it's just like a series of boss battles and heavy story. I don't think there's a problem with the pacing, but it doesn't feel necessarily elegant in a, any specific way. Whereas Metal Gear Solid 3, like it's so good at ratcheting up the story and then bringing it back down. So like you're always building to these mini climaxes almost think of it like a six or seven like comic book arc or something like six or seven issues where it needs to have a climax at the end of each of those issues in a way, but also set up what comes next, but what comes next should be a little bit bigger in scope so that you're starting in the most basic terms. You know, you're just kind of sneaking through no gun, no nothing. And then you kind of build your way up to, you know, this big sniper fight over three different maps. And then finally Mm -hmm. you're on a motorcycle like Indiana Jones and you're gunning a big nuclear tank down uh, with the crazy Russian riding on top of it. And then it understands that after all the big set pieces, you still want to have this big emotional finish. But if you kind of go from one right to the other, it's just very jarring. You don't give the player a chance to settle down. So there's like an inserted escort mission, you know, and people don't really love escort missions in game, but this one does it so attuned with the pacing of the story that makes you sit there, focus on the gameplay again for a second, give you a last little bit of stealth so that when you do have that last encounter with the boss, it doesn't feel like you're just being assaulted for the last hour, hour and a half of the game. It feels very much like it guided you through it in a way that allowed you to appreciate all the ups and downs with it. It's a game that really lets you be in the moment at all times. It's not a specifically long game. You know, it's probably six hours in total. If you kind of run through it fast and you kind of skip some of the boring cutscenes. So it's not like exceedingly long, but it's very good at understanding its scope and its sense of place in the story overall that sometimes I feel like games don't really think about in the same way. It just kind of handled all the emotional ups and downs really well in a way that allowed the emotion to really come through because I don't think a lot of video games make me as emotional as Metal Gear Solid. And I think part of it is Kojima understanding when to kind of pull it back and when to really just kind of let it all hang out. I think you really get to the core of what makes this game great. Uh, Speaking to the pacing piece and how short it is from an actual pure gameplay side of things, I played this game on an old PlayStation 3 because it's really the only legal way you can play it. And then I put the disc in, I play through two, no problem. And then three, uh, it just, the disc just does not want to load the game properly. So Mm. I get to, I think it's right after the fear and the game would just crash and not load the upcoming screens. And I just could not progress through the game. The first thing I did was start the game over from scratch and I didn't mind. I didn't mind that I had to go through all of that again because I was so in love with the actual act of playing the game. It was great revisiting those spaces. When I did ultimately get back to that sticking point again, I had to go through this whole process of debuffing the disc and ultimately got it working again. It's a very satisfying game to learn and play and to experience. So you're absolutely right about that. And to build on top of that, I think that the game is very accommodating of approaching a situation from more than one angle. And that's why I love the boss fights in this game so much, because the wealth of approaches that this game offers you and how to beat them is not typical for even AAA games with their massive budgets and inclination towards the cinematic. Most games will just sort of give you like one solution to a problem, but this game is very excited at the prospect of experimenting in different ways and how to defeat an enemy. 
So if you're willing to be patient and experiment, you can find many, many, many different ways to beat the bosses in this game and many, many different ways to beat the game as a whole. You don't have to kill a single person to beat this game, even though it is, you know, a game set during the Cold War and is built around the military aesthetic. You And I try my best to play these games with non-lethal weapons because I think that that is such an interesting challenge and one that this specific game rewards you with during one of the boss fights, as a matter of fact. That's what I really love about this game. And that's really something that I really wish more games would do because one of the big gaming buzzwords since the first Bioshock game came out was ludonarrative dissonance, which is really about you know the relationship between the act of interacting with these games and the message that they're trying to convey or how the actual narrative plays out. And this is a very simple, reductive definition of it, but the violence in video games in general feels very contradictory to the characters that you play as in these games, like in the Uncharted games that we mentioned earlier. Nathan Drake is a serial killer who kills hundreds <laughs> upon hundreds of people over the course of a single game, and no one remarks upon it, and he's not a wanted criminal, and people just generally think he's a very uh, likable guy. He's a murderer. He kills all of these people canonically, or at least you think he does because you have to do the killing, and he gets to be the the, the plucky hero during the cutscenes, but you can actually reap what you sow in the case of one of the boss fights here, where if you kill a bunch of people, uh, the ghosts of them appear and haunt you and make a segment of the game extremely difficult to play. Whereas if you approach a game passively and don't kill every single thing in your path, uh, that particular boss, uh, you aren't haunted by anything. And it's a very, very simple segment of the game. And I think details like that and having an appreciation for video games to the point that you care more about telling a good story, but giving a good experience is what makes the Metal Gear franchise so good. Even like the proto boss fight to start the game early on, um, you're in a room with Eva and then you're surrounded by Ocelot unit guards and you basically have to subdue the eight guards that are patrolling the area or trying to bust in and break you out. And every Metal Gear game up until that point had a similar set piece to open the game. It was basically the sequence where it teaches you how to use a gun. You need to know how to use a gun to progress past this point. But instead, they totally reworked this traditional first, you know, shootout encounter where you can hide. You can do it completely non-lethally. You can do it without even using a gun. You can use stun grenades. You can just punch and kick and choke people out and knock them out. Right from the get-go, it shows you there is no right way to play this game. And it allows you to create an experience that's just yours. Like you said, most games, you pretty much are on a track as designed by the developer. So everyone's gaming experience is essentially the same. And especially with bosses, I think of the Zelda model where you go get this thing to fight this guy and that's kind of that. Whereas in this game, basically every item or weapon you get can be used against you know, any boss, um, granted some enemies have weaknesses and strengths against certain weapons, but that's the joy of it. You can experiment, you can find different ways to uh, subdue enemies. Uh, you get The fear fight, the one you mentioned earlier, that's one you can fight without a gun um, because the boss uses so much of its stamina, uh, stamina uh, to camouflage itself. It's going to get hungry and needs to eat to maintain its energy levels. And you can throw poison food or rotten food that it will eat and make its stamina go down even further. So 
Um, their entire battles you can fight without even pulling out a gun, which for a military action game is pretty unheard of. And I do got to flag that Uncharted thing. One thing I do like about Metal Gear Solid 4, and I can't remember if Uncharted was out before 2008 or before Metal Gear Solid 4, but like if you go on one of those Nathan Drake shooting sprees, Solid Snake will literally vomit on screen and see a significant dip in his psyche because theoretically murdering a bunch of people like a maniac um, is not good for your (laughs) mental health. The fact that it's always engaged with the violence on screen and the fact that it all has a very thematic exclamation point because you can go through this entire game, not use a lethal weapon at all. And in all the cutscenes prior to the ending, Snake, even if he's brandishing a lethal weapon, doesn't actually kill anyone in those. And then at the end, you actually have to kill the boss. Um, And there's no other way around it. And you, the player, have to actually press the trigger button to put the bullet in her. When you do have to use a gun, it actually means something. It's not just there to fulfill a power fantasy or to be this fuck yeah moment. It's there to be like, oh, oh, this sucks. And I really love that aspect of it. And it makes you be culpable in the act of killing too, which is another great consideration by Kojima in terms of making these experiences interactive and making you a part of it. But yeah, the bosses in this game are just super super good. And I really wish more games would approach problems in the same way. Obviously, it's not tenable given, you know, the resources and the time that goes into these things. But Kojima is always with it on that level. And that's why I like the bosses in these early games. So there's no game that's absolutely perfect either. Many come close, but at the end of the day, we're gamers. We love to nitpick. We love to fixate on the negative. Even this game has a re-release after the initial one, like you talked about. The original game came out in 2004, and then in 2005 or six, the subsistence re-release came out. And that one added some content and gave the players a better camera because that was a criticism of the original game. Point is, nothing's perfect. What is something that you wish, you know, this game that means a lot to you and that you have a strong relationship with did better? Hmm. Well, um, it's not major to the thesis of Metal Gear Solid 3, but they do kind of take some cheap shots at Raiden uh, in the course of the game. And I yes. think Raiden is a character that I've, I, I enjoyed him in Metal Gear Solid 2 in 2001, but as time has gone gone on, I've really come to appreciate him as a character by itself. And of course, what the point of Raiden is and why he's there and why he's like he is. Um, and then of course, we get a little bit more of him in Metal Gear Solid 4 and Revengeance, but that's the part where it's like, ooh, because they do some like gay jokes at his expense. And I don't think yeah. it was necessarily like, oh, it's bad that he's gay, but it it kind of like fed into the worst aspects of the detractors of Metal Gear Solid 2. Because I, you know, there are canonically queer characters otherwise in uh, the Metal Gear Solid franchise that are handled fairly well, or at least it's not done in any kind of cringy way, good or bad. It's just like, oh, yeah, they're gay. So that's like the one thing they do do some cheap shots at him. They also do use Ryzen to poke fun at people because um, when you start the game, uh, you can put in your experience with Metal Gear Solid 2 or with the Metal Gear Solid series overall. And if you say, I played Metal Gear Solid 2 and hated it, I think you start with Raiden as the appearance of your character. It's revealed to be a mask or whatever. Um, So they do have some fun with that character. But the way they write this Rykov character and the way that he's basically just Volgan's bottom, but not in an empowering way, he's not a power bottom in that sense. It just isn't great. And I just wish that character got a little more. There is stuff with Eva, I think, is a little little too horny to work. Uh, But I think it does... 
like most of it serves a purpose and that Eva is fairly well realized and has her own agenda and isn't just there to be a Bond girl to Solid Snake, even though she herself is playing up that angle. I think that is probably a place where you could make, you know, updates on. But overall, I think it still holds up well enough with her. And I wouldn't want to change it too much in fear of losing any of the other stuff because the boss and Eva kind of reflect two sides of a coin that uh, Solid Snake or Naked Snake is flipping during the course of this narrative. So I do think there is something to the sexualization of Eva, even if it doesn't always come across, which, you know, shocking from Kojima or or any male creator, um, especially back in that time when uh, such considerations weren't such a big part of the discourse and um, the artistic critical field. No, I, I'm completely with you there. I actually literally have in my notes under this question, I don't care for the Rykov stuff, honestly. And so when you mention immediately oh, I don't really like the way they handle the Raiden jokes in this game. I just had to <laughs> yell in like complete agreement because I had the exact same note. Ivan Raidinovich Rykov, who is a dead ringer for Raiden in Metal Gear Solid 2, and like you said, is the butt of a lot of jokes at his expense. It really leans into the way that fans treated Raiden in terms of a complete joke. They would joke, oh, he is androgynous, so he's gay and effeminate and since he's not as cool as snake and again this is a deliberate choice that was made they hated the character and seeing kojima sort of put this character in there to be the subject of some mean-spirited jokes i know it's i don't think that kojima is entirely homophobic but in the context of this game it's not a good look when only uh the villains get to be queer and he is this write-in character is the like you said the bottom of the very uncomplicated villain (laughs) who is just very cruel and malicious so i don't think it as a joke lands very well and i think it all ends up being mean-spirited especially since i like the way the ride-in character is used in metal gear solid 2 i like metal gear solid 2 a lot i wish more games were like it but you know in this age and we talked about this earlier everything is discourse now anything that challenges anybody is just evil in their eyes Things like The Last Jedi or Metal Gear Solid 2 or a recent example and not nearly as deep as Metal Gear Solid 2, but The Last of Us 2 Mm -hmm. has backlash that mirrors Metal Gear Solid 2's in a lot of ways because an expectation was set in their heads and then very early on that expectation is subverted and then you are challenged emotionally for the rest of the game and whether that game lands all those things is a, you know, again, another day. I'd like to talk about that, but not right now. But it is just so mind-boggling to see this discourse repeat itself when 20 years ago we were having it about Metal Gear Solid 2. And that's all to say, I don't care for the ride-in jokes in this. It's like one of the few instances where Kojima doesn't have faith in his conviction. Um, Mm -hmm. Usually he's, you know, there's conviction behind all his choices and he stands behind it. And this kind of seems like one of the few places where he kind of faltered on that. Um, I think he'd redeem himself because I do think he creates a very interesting ride in character in Metal Gear Solid 4 and is supposed to be an antithesis to the backlash as well. It kind of just feels gross that he kind of fed it. He gave into his lesser impulses or listened to the worst parts of the fan base. I'm, you know, I'm not sure what exactly the creative decision was there. Um, he could have just thought it was a fun joke or whatever. Who knows exactly what it is, but it's like the one one place where I didn't see the courage and the conviction of Hideo Kojima like you do in most other decisions he makes. 
So I'd also wanted to talk, go back a little bit and talk in depth about the bosses in this game because they're such a big fixture of the way that this game structured. They're a representation of everything that this series does well in terms of having just something completely batshit off the wall cool and immediately memorable. Would you like to walk me through the Cobra unit and what that experience is, is like as a player? Yeah, so um, I'll kind of go with the way that we work through them chronologically in the story because they kind of start out with the most absurd and the littlest backstory. I mean, they're still all absurd in their own ways, but you know, the first guy is the guy who's made of bees and when he barks, he shoots bees at you, um, that classic Simpsons joke. So he's just kind of a joke and he's doing this kind of sumo dance in the middle of this island. And I mean, it's it's a cool boss fight. It's, you're actually, this is the first boss fight where you're like interacting with water. You can swim, you can go underwater to avoid bees. He has a bee shield or a bee swarm that shields him. So you can use smoke grenades to kind of disperse them or a shotgun blast to disperse them. You know, it's just kind of fun. It's very in line with the base mechanics of Metal Gear. Can you navigate an arena and can you point and shoot? Nothing too much going on there. No special trick with the stamina or anything like that or special ammo. So yeah, you know, it's kind of goofy, but it engages the base mechanics, some of the base systems. But it's memorable because it's it's the guy who's made of bees. Uh, there, is, there isn't a lot of those. Um, there's probably a bee man somewhere in Mega Man. But, you know, when I think bees, I think of this guy. Or the guy on my Cheerios box, who knows, but... There's just something inherently funny about bees. And I think that bees are just synonymous with weird or funny. Similarly, in the first Bioshock game, you have a power that is ultimately just bees. You just throw bees at people. It is... It's hilarious. It's got to at least be Zelda, but I can think of several other games where it's like, oh, you see like a bee's nest somewhere, you can shoot it. Oh, it's Metal Gear Solid 3 even. Um, And, you know, the bees will make guards run away or, you know, bother people so you can, you know, loot an area or something. So uh, bees have always kind of been this comical thing. Going back to like Yogi Bear and Bugs Bunny cartoons. So I don't know if that's a specific influence or not, but uh, the comedic power of bees, it's, it's really there. I am the pain. I will guide you to a world of anguish beyond your imagination. Or what? You will eat the dogs or the bees or the dogs with bees in their mouth and when they bark, they shoot bees at you? Well, go ahead. Do your worst. It's, it is also in Zelda. It's in the uh, fortress in Majora's Mask where that's you have it. to... That's exactly dirt. what I was thinking. Incidentally, it is a stealth section and I think... That came out in 2000, Metal Gear Solid came out in 1998, and that game famously had a one-year turnaround with a very, very constricted time schedule. So I wonder if that particular segment of the game where you are stealth-oriented, if that was informed by that at all. But we're digressing here. Let's talk about the next boss. They don't allow you to have bees in here. Yeah, so now we're on to the fear who is someone who can do stealth camouflage, which in the Metal Gear parlance means go essentially completely invisible, kind of like the Predator style in that in the Predator movies. He's also like supposedly modeled a little bit after uh, Spider-Man. Um, these are actually some failed concepts they had for Raiden in the way that his limbs move and the way he kind of crawls and walks around. They thought they might have Raiden do that in Metal Gear Solid 2 to be really upsetting. Um, They scrapped all that, but Kojima loves to scrap stuff and then find uses for it later in his games, which is kind of fun to track. It can be a very traditional fight. You can just um, 
put on your night vision goggles, or if you have good enough eyes, you can kind of track his invisible silhouette. But this is the faucet really invokes the stamina meter, which is in addition to your health meter, um, both uh, Naked Snake and all enemies have a stamina meter. And basically, if you deplete it, an enemy will be incapacitated. If they try to shoot their gun with low stamina, you'll have a you know spotty aim because you can't hold your hands you know steady. Um, so mm-hmm. this is a boss that really engages with that system. Like I said, when he goes stealth, that eats up a ton of his stamina. So he has to go around the arena and look for food. So you can throw food at him or you can throw poison or whatnot, and he will consume it. <laughs> and that will make him basically deplete his stamina, deplete his health. I think if you throw poison, that will actually like kill him properly, just lower his health. Or if you throw rotten food, it just continually lowers his stamina, stamina, stamina. And that'll incapacitate him. So it's a pretty fun fight. It's not incredibly difficult or one of the more mind-blowing ones. But again, you find it's another way to engage with the systems that they're laying out. And one thing that Metal Gear Solid has always been good about since the first game is that everything that's true for your player is to some degree true of everyone else that's part of the game. This particular boss I remember really struggling with until I remembered that I had the night vision goggles like... So realizing I could turn those on and see exactly where he was, the boss fight went from confusing to me equipping them the next time I reload it and just popping him in the tree and he couldn't move because I just kept shooting him with the uh, trank darts. So that became a trifle. The fear! I see it! The fear! I think the end is next, right? Yeah. So the end who is you know considered one of the best Metal Gear Solid bosses and one of the greatest bosses of all time, often contended with the last boss of this game. So Metal Gear Solid has always been big on sniper battles. Most games feature at least one giant mm-hmm. sniper battle. Going back to the first one uh, with Sniper Wolf, it was a very emotional moment in that first game. It's the end of the second act. It's a key part in both Otacon and Solid Snake's character arcs. So like the sniper battles on top of being, you know, these very fun, idiosyncratic style battles compared to other Metal Gear Solid boss fights have always had this kind of extra weight to them. So mm-hmm. what we have here is the end who he himself was also originally kind of going to be in Metal Gear Solid 2, but they kind of scrapped him and then tweaked his character. He was going to be an old sniper, but not quite as old as he is here. He's an ancient sniper, as the game calls him. And this is a boss battle that takes place over the course of three different maps, uh, which is just not something that was heard of back in the day. You can even leave the boss fight. You can just go back, backtrack, which is not something that a lot of um, bosses, even in Metal Gear Solid, you're able to do. I'm really big into sniper aesthetics and sniper aspects of game. The first time through, I pulled out my sniper rifle. And if you don't have one, there's one embedded in the three maps that you can go recover. You can basically just try to locate him, see if you can locate his sniping spot, and then just pop him. Tracking him, um, locating where he is, is the real fun part because you have tools such as a sound microphone, so which you can aim around the map and see if you can hear someone breathing or kind of comically he will randomly say, this is the end. And you can kind of use that to pinpoint where he is. You can use your night vision goggles and see if there are footprints in wet mud, but also it rains at certain points and the rain will wipe away those footprints. So they may only be there for a short period of time. He has a pet bird that's kind of his spotter, or you can use that against him. You can tranquilize the bird, capture it, and then release it. And if you do that, it will fly immediately back to his location. 
something completely out of bounds of the narrative. Uh, Konami is famous for having a input code, you know, up, up, down, down, left, right, left, right, BA, select, start, or something close enough to that. Going back to its games on the NES where you can get extra lives or extra ammo. If you do that in the map screen of this game, it will mark the end's location. So there's just a million ways to go about locating him. And then my favorite way of actually dispatching him is locate where he is. And instead of trying to pop him, you can actually sneak up behind him with your uh, stealth walk and you can hold him up. You can shake him down for his camo. He has the best camo in the game. It's the only uh, camo that will get you 100% you know, stealth rating at various points in the game. And then you do kind of pop him with uh, the tranquilizer or bullets once he's lying down on the ground. But I find that to be the most satisfying and most fun way to approach this. If you go the sniper route, you can kind of take him out in five to 10 minutes if you're good at locating him. But if you really want to stalk him, hold him up each time, you know, that can be anywhere from 30 minutes to an hour and a half. It depends how much you want to do. And he's able to heal himself. He photosynthesizes for health. He doesn't eat food. So Mm -hmm. there are points where he will go and sit in the sunlight and, you know, heal himself. And speaking of sunlight... If you just sit out there with your binoculars or your sniper rifle too long with your scope up, it will cast a reflection off the sunlight and that will help him locate you. So every trick that you're using to locate him works against you in just the same way. So it's a lot of fun. The maps have a lot of elevation. Um, They have, you know, waterways, waterfalls, little rivers and creeks. There's animals in there, so you can't just throw on your thermal goggles and assume that the red thing over there is going to be something that is going to be him. It could be just a goat or something like that. So um, it's a really creatively designed map or set of maps uh, combined with just every possible mechanic in play for this battle. It, it It is truly a staggering achievement to me. It is a staggering achievement. It is, even if you're optimized and like, want to do it the sniper way which is again probably the shortest way you can do it like you said the five to ten minutes it still probably will be the most time you will spend in a boss battle in this game and that's very deliberate because kojima wanted to pace this to be a long experience because that's what sniping is like in real life it's weird because he is i think his work lands on you know anti-war but he does have a reverence for the soldier in a way that isn't fetishistic like a lot of more right-wing adjacent Mm -hmm. art is it's interesting on that level but he really wanted to demonstrate to the player how time consuming this act of sniping is so in your first go around it's probably going to be 45 minutes to an hour and a half like it was for me and you didn't even mention the easiest exploit to beat this boss which is the end is literally over 100 years old and he is at the end of his life so if you get to the boss battle and then turn the game off and wait in real time i think a week or move the game uh, move the console's internal clock forward seven days and then load the game he dies he just he he died of old age because real time had passed and that is something that i don't think any game up to that point had ever done yeah no it's new to me and that's again kojima uh playing with the console is part of the game experience it's not just the data that's written onto the cd you're playing off of um he's taking full advantage of everything and i think it's actually like if you like save the game in the map and then uh you know turn off the game and you come back within two or three days you you might be in jail actually 
Um, so it's like different. And then I think you're right that it's at least like five or seven days um, and then he'll die. And uh, on the flip side, the end is not using lethal ammo. All of these Cobra character or Cobra unit characters are meant to die at Snake's hands. Like that's part of what the whole entire mission is. The end can't really kill you. So he's using um, these tranquilizer sniper uh, rounds. Um, and if he gets you all the way down to uh, zero stamina, then you go to that same jail and you have to work your way back and fight him again until you actually beat him. And he actually also can sneak up on you and hold you up. And that will also get you sent to jail. So it's just really incredible that all these possible things exist in one single boss battle. Um, and I almost think that there's two or three things I'm not even mentioning. <laughs> Oh, um, there is another one. Uh, there is a cutscene earlier in the game, which features oh the God, end yeah. being wheelchaired out um, just to be present for something. And when the cutscene ends, he is temporarily left on the map before a guard comes up and wheelchairs him off. And you can pull out your sniper rifle in this scene, I think 20 to 30 minutes earlier in the game, and you can kill him right then and there. And then if you go to the end maps, uh, it will not be the end there, but Instead, a series of Ocelot unit members, various people patrolling, a couple of them sniping. Um, it's actually a very fun stealth challenge if you're just someone who wants to give yourself something kind of difficult but fun to do. Like I said, there's just so many ways to approach this battle. It really is a highlight of the Metal Gear franchise overall. It really speaks to everything that makes this franchise great, all wrapped up in one boss battle. The thing that still gets me about it is this game was made in 2004, which is approaching 20 years ago. And there are still games that don't have that level of depth in terms of mechanics. I don't know. It just really gets to me that someone cared this much to think of so many ways to approach a single situation. I am the end. I am here to send you to your ultimate fate. I don't want to take up too much of the listener's time or take up too much of your time. So I do want to briefly run through the last couple of bosses and then mm -hmm. we can wrap up the last couple of segments I have for you here. Yeah. So after the end comes the ladder, which is just a two and a half minute ladder climb. Uh, that's kind of a joke, but it's also kind of been canonized as a boss in Metal Gear Solid. But what really comes next is the Fury who is not one of the more complex uh, fights, but it is one of the most difficult of the game because he is a cosmonaut with a flamethrower and jetpack. Both the jetpack and flamethrower will ignite the map in a way that's you know very hard to avoid. It's all done in the sewer, so it's very dark. It's diegetic lighting. Uh, the fires of him basically light the arena, which is a kind of a really cool effect. So it's playing with the lighting and uh, Snake's uh, visual field in that way. You start seeing a little more pathos in the character, even though you don't really linger on the Fury. He's not in any of the other big uh, scenes, but you see someone who kind of went to space and got really pissed off, uh, which mm -hmm. doesn't sound like a great <laughs> character arc, but it just makes for a really cool character. He's talking to himself in real ways, a real interesting way. Sorry. There's a little bit of David Bowie built in there because it has a little bit of that um, space oddity, ground control to a major Tom vibe uh, going on throughout it all. And then he kind of blows up and does the whole like flaming Voldemort face as he crashes the walls down around you. So it's kind mm -hmm. of goofy, but it specifically stands out to me as the most difficult of the boss fights in this game. But it, it's cool. It's distinct from all the other ones. It engages with the fire mechanics. You know, um, you can use your night vision goggles to navigate the dark and you can also rip open his flame suit. 
uh, which makes him, you know, less impervious to his own flames. So um, you start doing that and then he starts taking even more damage. So I'm trying to think if there's anything really goofy or cheesy you can do with this battle, but I'm coming up blank on him. I'm going to sound like a hypocrite because weirdly, I do have a lot to say about the Fury, even though he is kind of a footnote as far as the rest of the Cobra units concerned. Here I am like saying like, oh, I want to rush through this last section and suddenly, oh, wait, the Fury, I have something on this. I don't know what his reputation is in terms of difficulty, but for some reason, this was the only boss fight in the game that I did not die from a single time. And maybe that's just sensibilities. Maybe it's because at that point, I technically played through the game twice at this point to get there. I think, you know, having the night vision goggles in a dark arena and once you get the sense of like how his attack patterns work, it gelled for me. This isn't a flex. Like I said, I somehow died to the B guy. I think there's something really interesting about the way that he went to space and got pissed off about it and became extremely nihilistic about it because that's not really a perspective that we get a lot in these astronaut stories. I just watched the new Richard Linklater movie, Apollo 10 and a half last week uh, that probably no one's going to see because Netflix didn't promote it, completely different conversation, whatever. Uh, but that is, you know, about a very childlike sense of wonder at the the accomplishment of the moon landing and what that represents and how it is very literally expressed as like a moment in time where it feels like we are so insignificant that the idea that peace isn't achievable is ridiculous once you get up there. But he goes up into space and basically has sort of a similar experience in terms of like, we are small, we are nothing. And nothing matters when I come back and I am pissed off and angry at the world because of all that. It's just a weird, unique perspective that you don't see a lot in media because, you know, movies like Contact has a completely different view about that kind of stuff, you know, should have sent a poet. And then in this case, they should have sent a happier guy to space. (laughs) And then the last thing I have to say about the Fury is his attacks were all fire-based. So when you're actually fighting him in the gameplay, he just like has all these fire-based one-liners like, feel the burning rage and <laughs> taste my fury and ignition fire and my wife is really hot. Now, he doesn't actually say that last one, but you get the point. But he's completely all in on the fire gimmick and the anger gimmick. And he just talks about flames and furies and burning constantly. And then if you hit him and shoot him, he's just like, son of a bitch! And it's just really hilarious to me because that is such like a very... <laughs> dad stubbing his toe against the wall reaction to getting shot i think it's hilarious i don't know why i have fixated on that because it's been almost five months since i beat the game but i i love that a lot son of a bitch yeah i think even on our podcast was like we realized the fury was a lot more humorous than we had perceived and not in a way that kind of undercuts the character it's just such an absurd concept and everything going around and I, I do like that it is kind of a dichotomy between the fury and the boss or the joy rather kind of two different reactions to the very same experience so like i said i think it kind of also stands out as all the bosses kind of leading up to this were goofy and then this one's like oh this is kind of tragic in a way even if we don't really get the whole story and i think that's just priming us for the next one uh the sorrow Sorry if I'm doing a transition for you. Another thing that, you know, the David Bowie thing is obviously such a fixture in Kojima's work. And the Fury obviously embodies that by literally saying lines from Space Oddity and the Major Tom Coming Home song by Peter Schilling, I think, which is a song that is a tribute to David Bowie's Space Oddity. Mm -hmm. But obviously David Bowie is a fixture in 
Kojima's work in just a lot of different ways and how he's represented. I know that he was considering using either Ashes to Ashes or Space Oddity as the ending song before settling on what's it called? Ways to Fall? Uh, Way to Fall. Way to Fall, excuse me. Before he settled on that song. Characters like Kazuhira Miller have the likeness of Bowie, uh, specifically in the movie Merry Christmas, Mr. Lawrence. Just so many characters look like David Bowie in some way or another. It's ridiculous. But I did want to touch on that because David Bowie is one of my favorite music artists, and I credit him for getting me into music. And I would hate myself if I did a podcast about Metal Gear Solid 3, and I didn't talk about the Bowie stuff. And again, I'm really sorry for fixating on the Fury after I said we got to <laughs> probably wrap it up, but I, I really needed to bring it up. And now we can talk about the sorrow. I'm coming home. I see the earth. Um, I will say solidarity. I love David Bowie too, and he's all over the games. Maybe that can be a fun future episode, but the sorrow, the sorrow is, you've alluded to this earlier, this is the moment where this game confronts you with all the violence you've done. So essentially, um, the sorrow, which comes after an homage to my favorite movie, The Fugitive, uh, Snake does a leap from the top of a dam to escape uh, Ocelot. What, you know, he kind of has this like, dream or like near-death experience. I don't know exactly how you want to phrase it, but basically the sorrow is already dead before the events of Metal Gear Solid 3. And through the course of this and um, subsequent games, we find out a little more about him in that he was the lover of the boss. So they were an item being separated as a result of the East versus West split, um, capitalism versus communism. He was an agent for the USSR. She was an agent for the USA. So after World War II, they found themselves on opposite sides of the Iron Curtain. But they did have a son, uh, a son who was born on D-Day, and that son was actually Revolver Ocelot. So there's a lot of backstory and tragedy wrapped up in the sorrow. Basically, the boss and the sorrow had to face off one another. And if one didn't kill the other, the patri- or the philosophers or whoever the secret puppeteers to the powers that be were at the time were going to kill Ocelot. So basically, the sorrow laid down his life and let the joy kill him. Um, and this kind of sets up a common theme that runs through the ending of all Metal Gear games. One must live, one must die. Um, there can only be one boss, one snake, etc. So we start finding out all of this stuff about the sorrow guy. So you are coming to after this, you know, jump from a height you shouldn't survive. I forget the term for the trees that are around you that, that kind of exist in bayous and swamps. But basically, they're all on fire and then they're all put out by a rain. And then the sorrow kind of lifts up or his phantom or his spirit does. Um, and he basically says he's going to bombard you with the sorrow of all the people you've killed. And then what happens is every single enemy character that you killed during the course of the game will walk down this river. Um, it's supposed to be evocative of both the river Styx, you know, which is probably more known to Western audiences. But I believe there is a river of the three snakes that symbolizes the afterlife and death in Eastern cultures um, mm-hmm. that found itself in both Chinese and Japanese mythology. I'm not trying to flatten it into Eastern, but it's kind of a common theme. Water being a source of life and death is obviously very core to humanity, so not a big surprise there. But anyway, so all the enemies that you've killed so far will come at you. And if you kill them in any kind of gnarly ways, those will try to be reflected in the death. 
there are characters that have flamethrowers outside of the Fury, and you can blow up their uh, flamethrowing packs. I guess that's the technical term for it. And then when they assault you uh, on this river, they will be on fire. If you shoot them, you know, in the groin, they will be holding onto their groin as they approach you. Um, and they're all just trying to come up and try to grasp you. Like in terms of tone, I can't think of a singular set piece that is like so iconic or so specific. Like the river you're walking through has like dead fish, like just kind of floating around in it. It's just like a very creepy horror scene, more or less, um, more so than anything in Metal Gear Solid before. Kojima has always been trying to present you with your violence on screen, uh, going back to the first Metal Gear Solid where Liquid uh, Snake monologues at you about it. But this is the first time I really felt like it became an interactive part of the gameplay and really showed the benefits of non-lethal play. When you kind of wrap up the fight, it's kind of like the death and rebirth of Naked Snake in a way and almost like the beginning of Big Boss. And this is like right after he lost his eye. It's very much a key part of where the Naked Snake Big Boss character is at the end of the second act of the story. Um, The entire second act of this game is essentially the Cobra unit battles. And this kind of closes the second act. It's kind of the low point of Naked Snake when he, you know, makes his escape just having been tortured and lost his eye. Um, But this is where he starts getting his groove back, so to speak, um, and really where his ascension starts into the last act of this game and then his story going forward in the saga. Yeah, he gets his mojo back and then immediately after has like an Austin Powers love scene in (laughs) Eva in the cave. I am the Slora. Like you, I too am. One quick couple of quick things about the sorrow. The specificity of your victims as depicted in the River Styx, you, you you gave really good examples, but to just show like the intense depth that this goes to, I managed to get to this point in the game non-lethally, so I didn't experience this personally, but something I have been told repeatedly is uh, there are vultures that can eat people. So if you manage to set things up where you kill a soldier and bait a vulture to eat his corpse and then you kill the vulture and then eat the vulture who has eaten the man one of the victims will like scream you ate me uh while you are wandering through this like flaming mangrove river it's just so it's so horrifying and what the fuck is going on in that man's head to like specifically concoct a scenario where he's like, all right, and then there's a vulture and then the vulture eats the man and then you eat the vulture. What would we do there? And then part of me as a developer, I'm thinking is like, what exactly did they code and what is being stored in the database? <laughs> like for mm-hmm. all these enemies, like, you know, death, where, by what, um, you know, these are things that, you know, take up space in terms of memory. Um, and stuff at this point was being written to uh, memory cards or a hard drive. But yeah, it's like, this is just absolutely bonkers stuff. You know, can you think of games even caring about what happens to an NPC once it's dead? Um, Not really, but this one actually does. And I really should go back and find all the weird ways to kill people in the first two thirds of the game just to see uh, what kind of reactions I can elicit. Uh, Snake, what are you doing? I'm in a box. It was my destiny to be here in the box. Destiny? You should come inside the box. Then you'll know what I mean. Man, I don't want to know what you mean. Something I think you'd appreciate as a coder is like how Kojima and his development teams really value compression in their games, which is a rarity, honestly, in the medium, because you look at 
Square Enix games, and they do not compress their audio files at all, and they put a billion language options in them. So if you download any Final Fantasy game that's come out in the past couple of years, they just have these obnoxiously large file sizes because they don't want to compress these audio files. But if you download even Metal Gear Solid Five, The Phantom Pain, which is a large game, it has a pretty small file size relative to other AAA games at the time because they really value compressing these into you know, a manageable format. So that does speak to how much they can cram into these games even back in 2004. All these games go so much deeper than even I have even scratched. I mean, I've scratched the surface pretty well, uh, but like they just go so deep. And I think that's one of the things that I really like highlighting and getting into the technology with Metal Gear is they really do have a mastery of the tech. They're always utilizing everything and they're always making sure everything runs efficiently, works well, and they're trying to do what makes sense for the game and the game experience. You know, they thought with that original Metal Gear Solid, maybe we do do fancier cinematics and rework the compression and allocation for, you know, what goes where. And they decided it would be a better experience if it all used the same engine. So um, Mm -hmm. they really are thinking about all of this stuff, which doesn't always feel like is the case, especially on my PlayStation 4. I feel like half the games I play that have been released in the last two, three years, um, I still buy physical copies because, you know, there are issues sometimes with just digital versions. And it sounds like my PlayStation 4 is going to take off and go to the moon, whether it's inefficiency of code, inefficiency of hardware, a combination of the two, or any Metal Gear Solid title has never had that effect on a console, which, you know, is another point in its favor. Looks like I think we, oh, another quick thing about the Sorrow that I really love is he is uh, Revolver Ocelot's father, and you can tell because Ocelot is a little shit in all the games, but he is in a special little rascal here, and he's just a himbo of a man, and I love him. Mm-hmm. But throughout the game, like, the Sorrow will show up in, like, first-person view modes that you go into throughout the game, and you always see him, like, lingering behind, mainly the boss because of their relationship with each other. And my favorite instance of this is right after the big torture scene in the game where he is trying to reach out to you, but he does not talk. So the game writes around the fact that he cannot like communicate through via voice by him having the ghost of a piece of paper (laughs) with the codec number that you can Mm -hmm. call to move forward in the game. And it's just, I don't know, uh, something about the ghost piece of paper just really gets to me and is also stay with me for the past five months because it's just a, such a absurd thing that I love. It's but, not just ghost paper. It's magic paper too. Cause uh, during the Volgan sequences a little bit later, it actually has a counter um, mm-hmm. because you have a time limit before your C3 is going to go off. So whatever he's holding up also has like changing numbers on it, counting down. So um, not just ghost paper, but ghost magic paper. Precisely. Commence the operation. I raised you. I loved you. I've given you weapons, taught you techniques, endowed you with knowledge. There is nothing more for me to give you. All that's left for you to take is my life by your own hand. One must die and one must live. No victory, no defeat. The survivor will carry on the fight. It is our destiny. The one who survives will inherit the title of boss. And the one who inherits the title of boss will face an existence of endless battle. 
I'll give you 10 Ultimately, the mission of the game is to take out the Cobra unit and the boss. As you get to that point in the game, you realize that it was all staged and it was set up that Snake was going to beat the boss, whether he truly wanted to or not. So the Cobra unit, uh, even if you're playing the game non-lethally, they will die in the next cutscene because they have bombs inside of them that explode after they're defeated. It's a smart way to work around the idea that uh, even if you're playing the game as non-lethally as possible, these characters still die. But it also doesn't necessarily give you the full guilt of, oh, I actively pursued murder on that person. It was just this person dies because there are forces greater than you who are facilitating the events of the story. Once this is all revealed to you that this was all set up and the boss was not only meant to die, but he has to die by Snake's hand specifically, your worldview as the player and Snake are, are rocked after you defeat the, the boss in a comparatively stripped back sequence where it's just an open field and it's all driven by the emotion of this is your mentor. This is the person you have the most intimate relationship with in the world who built you up and you now have to defeat her in combat and then kill her in the name of your country. This all culminates in you having to pull that trigger and kill your boss no matter what because nothing can progress until you do that. It's just incredible how it plays out because again, you fight all these complex bosses with convoluted solutions, but there's only one way this can all end. And I think that's something that's realized not only in the narrative, but in the interactive portion of the game. Is there anything that you would want to add to that or sort of clarify? It also remains like one of the most iconic looking final boss arenas or boss arenas period. I forget. It's like the Lily of Bethlehem or something like that. The Orchid of Bethlehem. I forget the exact term, but the specific white flowers that are there to lay out the boss arena. And of course, it blends in pretty well with the boss's camo or sneaking suit rather in a way, in a way similar to the end, but in kind of a more action and condensed way. It really does engage every single system in the game. You know, your stealth, your camouflage, you'll need to eat. And there's actually, you know, food around the arena if you need to, like, tranquilize a snake or something. And there's actually three snakes labeled liquid, solid, and solidus in the map arena. You know, the first time I played this, I, like, with the first two Metal Gear Solid games, uh, as you go through boss battles, you're generally using stronger weapons through. Like, you usually use a pistol for your first fight against, like, Olga or Revolver Ocelot. And then you kind of use a machine gun against the next boss. And then you have a sniper rifle. And then you start using the rocket launcher near the end of the game to take out the titular Metal Gear or whatever. And mm -hmm. with this game, that never really is the case. But, you know, the first time through, I'm like, should I be using my assault rifle? Should I be using a rocket launcher? And like it all played, I could use it all. But what really the best way to really do this, or at least what I think is the best way is with your pistol and more so the CQC, which is a form of combat in universe that was invented by the boss, a naked snake. So it's also thematically poignant that that is the best way to take on this fight because um, the boss will rush you and engage you in CQC. And if you don't counter her moves and are able to get in, uh, get in your punches and your bu uh, bullets or tranks. Um, she'll destroy you just with the CQC. So I thought that was all very effective. And it's 
it's just a cool fight. And so much of it is just wrapped in the story around it. Um, the boss's monologue before the fight, the tragic ending to it, the way the white flowers turn to red when you execute the boss. And a lot of the most memorable lines, the ones I mentioned earlier about how there can only be one boss or one snake, one must live, one must die. And there were iterations of those phrases in previous games, but this was the game that kind of made those be so impactful and meaningful in a way that the previous games really hadn't. Right. It, everything about the franchise is retrofitted to react to the events of this game and then future subsequent games also are made as a reaction to this story. There's something really smart about how they handle all of that. Um, the execution of it and maybe future games can be put to contention. I'm ultimately positive on it, but I know it's a big point of contention, but why fixate on a negative? This is about meaningful experiences. Mm -hmm. But that sort of wraps up the, you know, the boss stuff that I just wanted to talk about because it's just a really great way of emphasizing how robust this game is and how smartly designed it is and what makes it so legendary even 18 years on and what makes it age so well. Uh, like I said, I only played these games a few months ago and it still felt so modern in a way that most PlayStation 2 games don't. Like Grand Theft Auto San Andreas, for example, means a lot to me, but you look at the graphics on that game and they don't hold up well, but the style and gameplay aspects of MGS3 still hold up incredibly well. You are above even the boss. I hereby award you the title of Big Boss. One of the reasons that I wanted to do a video game podcast in the first place was to get on my soapbox and talk about a pressing issue in the industry, which is video game preservation. After workers' rights and improving accessibility features in games so people with disabilities can actually play them, I believe preserving and making games readily available is one of the biggest issues we need to address. So this segment is called No Country for Old Games. You enjoy role-playing games. I see that you enjoy Konami games. More so than books, music, and film, which also suffer from the availability problem to some extent, Video games are still treated as a product first and foremost by publishers. And, you know, we talked about this earlier. You specifically brought it up how it's still a relatively new medium in the grand scheme of things. Literature and poetry have been around for millennia, but things like film and video games, like video games have only really truly been around as a commercial product in the past 50 years. We are still working at the kinks in terms of preserving all these things and digital media makes things better, but it is a band-aid for a specific problem. Video games are still treated as a product first and foremost and not as a work of art. And that's why certain types of games get annual releases like your Call of Duties, your Assassin's Creeds, your sports games, uh, and why so many games end up falling into obsolescence. So some games are forever trapped on specific consoles because of the infrastructure of the console, such is the case for many PlayStation 3 games uh, like Metal Gear Solid 4. Kojima really used every single element of that console to its limit and really played with all the aspects of it to the point that it probably would not port well to a future versions of the console because that was such a uniquely made console. A significant portion of the Wii library is probably not going to be able to be ported because of the motion control aspect of that particular console. And then some games are simply left behind because as console hardware becomes obsolete and new consoles are released with limited backwards compatibility, it's really up to the publishers to decide if they want to port those to the next generation or not and resell them at a new price. So at that point, we're at the mercy of the publishers to either port an older game to current consoles or for a developer to work on or remake or remaster a new game out of that. 
So this is an issue I could conceivably talk about for hours, but I really want to focus the conversation on this one specific game for now, Metal Gear Solid 3. Uh, and you and I can assess together how readily available this game is and what they can and should do to improve its availability. So for this segment, we're going to rate the game on a scale from A to R. And that's me being frustrated with the game and how hard it is, not advocating for audiences to pirate this game if it's not commercially available and only available to buy on secondary markets where it's sold for ridiculous sums of money. Wouldn't advocate for that at all. Anyway, um, so this is the part the part of the show I hope ages poorly because I do want as many people to play this game as possible, but it is much harder than it should be. So putting it back to you, Manu, when you get the urge to revisit this game, how do you play it? Well, uh, it's it's funny because this has actually been a news item recently, or at least in the last five, six months, mm-hmm. um, is so Metal Gear Solid famously, especially in the first three titles, use stock footage at various points to like talk about nuclear wars or nuclear bombs, usually that, but sometimes it would be other stuff, just like random shots of New York and like the Federal Reserve Building and stuff like that. Because Konami did not keep up its license uh, agreement, they had to delist the Metal Gear Solid HD collection from digital stores. If you were playing it streaming or digitally, it was no longer available to you. You know, I have my hard copies of PS2, PS3 games, but I don't have a console to play them on. So when Mm -hmm. that happened last fall, right before we were going to start our Peace Walker coverage, Peace Walker doesn't have these uh, stock photo issues, but it's bundled with Metal Gear Solid 2 and Metal Gear Solid 3. So it was also removed from PlayStation Now. I had to go and purchase an Xbox 360 copy of the Metal Gear Solid HD collection. And I went to all my local uh, video game stores. And sadly, I also went to GameStop, which is not a business (laughs) I encourage people going to. None of them had it, which is also something worth noting because five, six, seven years ago, you go to a GameStop, there would be an entire wall of used games from the last two to three generations. But now when I go, it's all current gen, a little bit of last gen just because of availability issues with like the PlayStation 5. And then it's all Funko Pops. There is literally nothing from, let's say, seven or eight years ago. Whereas if I went to a GameStop 10 years ago, I would still, you know, expect them to have some like N64 games in like the back or something. And that has completely gone off the wayside. And it's all especially more ironic considering that Metal Gear Solid 2 very much is specifically about preserving digital data and how important it is and how someone has to take that initiative. Um, We really need to see a bigger archival and preservationist movement in video games. And that's why I really appreciate all the work I'm sure you're going to be doing on this podcast. A lot of our friends, um, our friend Mark Normandin has a newsletter that's retro XP all about old games. And this is an issue where if people don't really think of video games as an art form, they don't think about preservation as necessary. This goes into that whole idea of like a video game's meant to be picked up and played and have fun and then you turn it off. And it's, you know, it's something more than that. And even if it is just that, it's still worth preserving. It's just kind of wild that I had to go and buy a copy of the Xbox 360 version and I had to buy it off Amazon, another place I encourage you not to buy from if you can at all. These aren't these are bigger questions and they're not just necessarily related just to video games. These are bigger questions we should be asking about a lot of stuff going on with art and media these days is what are we doing to preserve it and making sure that the triteness is not being preserved or like the uselessness is not being preserved, but like what actually has value 
Um, and that requires actual archivists and preservationists, people to actually do that work. It's not just a matter of making sure you have you know a backup of all the video games, because as you say, formats are changing, storage is changing, uh, processors are changing. Part of the reason you know games are being lost is between like 1996 and 2008, there was really no standardized way to do games. Um, there was not a standard you know processing or motherboard. Like now, everything's basically a PC in some extent. Mm-hmm. That's why things can go from PC to Xbox very easily. That's why things can go from your phone to your iPad to your Mac computer pretty straightforward. They're all running essentially like-kind operating systems with like-kind hardware that interacts with data, stores data, compresses data in the same way. But in 1996 to 2008, we like to call it on the Metal Gear podcast, the Wild West of technology. No (laughs) one really knew what format was going to win out. That's why you saw like HD DVD versus Blu-ray DVD, Mm -hmm. different backward compatibilities between Microsoft consoles and PlayStation console or Sony consoles. Like all of those things were up in the air. Whereas now probably starting around 2009, 2010, we've kind of standardized, you know, we've kind of monetized the rot or streamlined the rot um, so that basically everyone's doing the same thing. But because of it, a lot of especially experimental or different approaches to gaming or games are kind of being lost because there is no greater need and championing of preservation in the games industry. Well, now I'm really glad that I had you on this episode because you just saved me a lot of breath. <laughs> I mean, this is the crux of what, well, it's not the crux, but it's like a big thing that I wanted to fixate on when I started this podcast was talk about how incredible these games are, but also talk about how unfair it is that so many of them cannot be accessed. There is literally no legal way to buy Metal Gear Solid 3 right now because of the Uh, digital rights issue. As of the date we are recording this, April of 2022, the HD editions of Metal Gear Solid 2 and 3 are still not available to purchase on digital storefronts since they were pulled on November 8th, 2021. Like you said, it was the rights to the historical footage used in certain cutscenes that have now expired. And seeing as that was less than a week before the 20th anniversary of Metal Gear Solid 2, I suspect that they only had a 20-year license on the footage. And since Metal Gear Solid 3 is typically bundled with 2, they had to take both of the games down. Some 20th anniversary, huh, Konami? But it sounds about so right I for hope, that company. Yeah, I mean, like, it's not a pachinko machine, so why do we care? My hope is that since it's a 35th anniversary of Metal Gear this year, uh, the Konami might see the money opportunity in front of them and do another re release on current day consoles. But seeing as this is Konami, that's maybe a pipe dream, but it would be an easy alley oop because they just revamped the PlayStation Plus service and come June. Uh, one of the tiers is going to include access to allegedly hundreds of PlayStation 1, PlayStation 2, and PlayStation Portable games to download, as well as streaming access for certain PlayStation 3 games. Because again, the infrastructure of the PlayStation 3 is so weird, their own company cannot figure out how to make these games downloadable and only available on streaming platforms. You know, my brother in Christ, you made the console. Um <laughs> I would like to imagine that Sony would want to include Metal Gear Solid 2 and 3 in that, but at the end of the day, legally, the ball is in Konami's court, and they're not exactly the 96 Bulls. Hey, that's me. I I was there for all those uh, Bulls titles, so I appreciate that reference. Yeah, Uh, 2096 was the year I was born, so... Yeah, um, you're far more optimistic than I about the 35th anniversary. I fully expect we're going to get a Metal Gear NFT 
Um, and I, <laughs> I, I just hope uh, Kojima is not involved is pretty much like the only thing I'm hoping for at this point. Yeah, um, I, I agree with you. I would love to see it. Uh, Metal Gear Solid, the first one is not a game I've been able to play. I think the last time I played it was 2009, 2010. Um, I'm a very mm-hmm. simple person. I, I like to play games on my console almost exclusively legally. The legal thing is just because I'm lazy, less so than I'm against playing it illegally. Um, but because of that, right. that was the last time I was able to play it was when I had a PlayStation 3 because the PlayStation 3 had a specific PlayStation 1 chip in it, which Metal Gear Solid 4 used to emulate Metal Gear Solid 1, but then also you could actually play the original Metal Gear on it. Right. A smart company would see this opportunity to re-release their older games. Not, not even. I'm not even asking them to remaster them. I'm just asking them to re-release the older games on current day consoles and possibly... Possibly. Again, I'm already asking for too much from Konami, apparently, but a physical release around the 35th anniversary of these games, it's an alley-oop, but I doubt it. I think at some point it will return to its original storefronts and maybe be included in the higher PlayStation Plus tiers that are going to launch in June, but we'll see because, again, this isn't a problem that most companies see. I wish Sony uh, would be a bit more optimistic about it because there's doubts that I have about how this PlayStation Plus membership is going to shake out. And I think it's really unfair to make a lot of these old games locked behind a subscription. So even if you are able to download them, once the membership lapses, you lose access to the games. I think it should also be necessary for people to be able to buy these games separately if they so wish. This is similarly an issue that I have with the Nintendo Switch Online where you can only access their classic library through the membership and not be able to purchase the game separately. If I want to replay Majora's Mask, I shouldn't have to pay a $50 a year subscription for the worst internet service in the world and for a horrible, horrible emulator. Point being, I'm writing this in ARG. You shouldn't have had to do all what you had to do, Manu, for a game that didn't even have the licensing issue in the first place. Man, it seems like it would have been a lot easier if you had been able to pirate that. Too bad that's illegal, but you had to commit like two ethical breaches to even like get access to the game in the first place. So it's like, whatever. But yeah, I'm reading the game in ARG. I, I'm really mad about this. I'm very, very happy that I have a PlayStation 3 that hasn't crapped out yet. Yeah, I think I'm going to pull the trigger and just get one at some point at this point. Um. Don't. Um... I'm willing to reevaluate my grade on this in the near future. I will happily go on the record as saying they did it if they do it, but I doubt that they'll do it. But I w- I'm happy to eat Vulture if <laughs> that were the case. That's that's this bleak segment right now. We are in a Kojima reality in the worst sense of the word. Thank you. Thank you so much for spending time with me today, Manu. Um, did you want to shout out any of your projects again or plug anything else while you are still here? Uh, No, I'll just run through uh, who I am again. I'm Manu, which hopefully you know that by now. Um, You can find me at Bomb on Twitter mostly, but any social media I exist on, I will be Bomb. And my podcasts are Podcasts on Frontiers. That is the Metal Gear Solid one. We just wrapped up. Uh, We'll be releasing our last episode on Metal Gear Solid Peace Walker coming up. And then we move on to Revengeance and Metal Gear Solid V in a little bit. And then over on the other end of things, I'm doing My Brother, My Captain, My Podcast, covering the Lord of the Rings films, but with an emphasis on the books and adaptation um, with my wonderful friend, Emily. And we just wrapped up the first film slash first volume of The Fellowship of the Ring. And we are just starting our coverage of The Two Towers. 
that's a lot of fun. We'll also be covering the Lord of the Rings Amazon Prime show coming this fall um, and doing a bunch of extra bonus stuff surrounding Tolkien's work. So um, if either of those things interest you, I highly recommend you check them out. And I absolutely will. I am a big fan of both your podcasts and I listen to them weekly. And I'm really super happy for you as from one friend to another that you are making such tremendous content on a week to week basis. And I really cannot overstate how happy it is that you were the first person to be on my show. I do have one more question for you before you go. Mm -hmm. Since Metal Gear is so significant to you in your life, it's how it shaped your relationship with media, how you interact with video games and how you interact with movies and all that. What other things not Metal Gear related would you recommend that people who listen to this check out if they like Metal Gear Solid 3? Well, I will shout out uh, the James Bond franchise if you're into the aesthetic of Metal Gear. Um, I think From Russia With Love would be a great one um, if you're into Metal Gear Solid 3. Another thing that's very, very near and dear to me is A Song of Ice and Fire which is uh, what the TV show Game of Thrones was based on. But I really want to stress the books I'm talking about here, A Song of Ice and Fire. I've brought up a lot of similarities between the two over the course of my Metal Gear coverage. And I think a lot of it has to do that both Kojima and the author, George R.R. R. Martin, uh, Jean Couteau or Couchteau, I don't know how to say the French name, that director is one of their favorites. And specifically, their film Beauty and the Beast uh, from the 1950s had significant influence on both. Uh, George Martin, um, he wrote a TV series called Beauty and the Beast with Linda Hamilton and Ron Perlman back in the late 80s, early 90s. That Beauty and the Beast theme shows up all over A Song of Ice and Fire, Game of Thrones. And then it's all over Kojima's work, too. There's a reason that most characters have an animal name to go along with their human name. There's a Beauty and the Beast stuff going on there. The Metal Gear Solid 4 game has a full Beauty and the Beast core unit. And it was really finding that that might be the cipher to all this, why I'm finding so many similarities between the two works, even though I very much know George Martin is not referencing uh, Metal Gear Solid and other way around as well. Mm -hmm. um, but the, I'm finding so many similarities and then being able to trace it back to this specific creator and this specific story. And if you like that stuff, I'm sure I'll have a ton of analysis that's already out online in terms of podcast and writing about A Song of Ice and Fire and Game of Thrones. So you can get all that and also get more me with it if you want to. Absolutely. Well, I really appreciate your time here. Uh, we're running up in almost three hours since we started. So have a lot of editing to do tomorrow, but tonight I am going to just rest on how great that this meeting was and be extremely grateful that you're my friend. So once again, everyone, this was Manu, also known as Manuclear Bomb, and you can find him over on Twitter and one, please, please, please listen to his podcast. He is way better at it than I currently am, and I would hope to one day reach his level and his output. Thank you. It has been a pleasure to talk to you. This is actually our first time really talking properly. So I, I had a great time and I'll happy to do it again. Happy to have you on my podcast. I love you a lot, buddy. You're one of the most important people to me. So um, thank you for allowing me to be your first guest. No, I, I seriously love you too, man. And I again, like I've said it a million times, but this was an incredible time. And I hope that I can have you back on the pod in the future to discuss either another Metal Gear game or you know, Elden Ring is a George R.R. R. Martin um, <laughs> contribution too. So if you ever want to come on and talk about your experience, I'm your guy. Yes. Call it a date. Thank you so much for listening to the first episode of Select and Start. Once again, I'm Kiefer. 
And if you like this episode, you can follow me on Twitter at Danny Vegito and keep up with the podcast at Select Pod Start. I plan on giving out updates on the progress of the next episode, and I'm trying to work out a regular release schedule. You can also hear more of my voice over at my YouTube channel, Kiefer's Corner. If you don't like the show at all, please don't unfollow me. The art for the show is made by my best friend, Avery Ott. You can follow him on social media with the handle at Avery Robin Ott. That's A-V-R-Y Robin O-T-T. You can check out the links in the description for his work as well as Manu's. All right, I think that's it. Kuwabara, Kuwabara. I've never talked this much about myself before. Thanks. Thanks for listening to me. I feel content. <laughs>